So up until uh, this episode, I hadn't really cracked open the the Monsters of the Multiverse book yet. And let me tell you, it is absolutely wild. Have you guys looked into the? I know, Adam, you have. But Tyler, have you looked into uh, this book at all? I have looked into it. It is. Am I, am, I, am I impressed with it? Yeah. No, in the sense of they've taken out so much lore, I have found. Now, they've crammed a whole bunch of information in there that it's like a compendium from all the other books trying to put everything into one, which is great. It's all in one place for a simple look, but they've taken away lore that was in Volos or that was in Mordekainen's. That lore that was there is no longer, and it's it does irk me a little bit, but it just means I got to do a bit more digging into it. But overall, it's it's okay. It's a, it's a good, easy read for the s- small little blips on each creature. Yeah, I, I was Adam. Do you have a do you have a thought on it? It's hot garbage. It's a piece of shit. It's horseshit, and I hate that it's the new standard. <laughs> you know, uh, I gotta say, I, I was of the same opinion at the beginning, and it's like, what the hell? Where where is everything? I gotta say, there's lots more room for pretty art um that's kind of cool but i also wasn't particularly thrilled with the art that they chose Uh, however i like it better than the original monster manual because it's more intro level when you give this to the average person who's coming off the street not not having played an rpg this is easier to handle than just about every other source of information on just about every other monster in it i would would agree with that but that doesn't mean i like it no and my my problem is they changed a lot of the abilities and how they work with this as well You'll notice yeah, that spell casting is just absolutely neutered. And now the spell counter spell means almost nothing because no monsters, nothing actually cast spells. They have abilities instead. So the wording is, anyways, I've got a lot of thoughts. We can get into this later. <laughs> uh, so can I just say the biggest thing that irks me is just there is no ability score modifiers. Like they're, they're not set modifiers with any of the playable races. It is a plus two and plus one type thing. And that irks me. That's just like, no, yeah, I don't that, that, that. Is, that is weird. Welcome to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another It's a Mimic episode, where we continue our conversation on playable races in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. I'm Adam, and with me today are Dave and Tyler, and this episode is called Hoofing It Through the Multiverse. In this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, this panel of Dungeon Masters will be sitting down to look at three moderately popular, but often complained about races from Magic the Gathering settings, and Mordenkainen presents the Monsters of the Multiverse. So strap in for a trip to the barnyard as we discuss a half-horse, half-cow, and half-goat. Okay, here's a question, though, guys. Do you think there are any other half-barnyard animals that would make an interesting character? Um, let's roll dice. All right. 18. 7. 6. I am going to swap this die out for the ones that I've been using on a regular basis. It's been working out for me today. Um... I mean, I think it would be kind of cool to play like a Bojack Horseman kind of character. I mean, it's right there. I mean, horse. The reverse centaur? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, you could do just about reverse anything, you know? It, they tried to do that with the Ardlings. But Dave, you're not up to. I'm not familiar with this. Oh, yeah. You're not up to speed on a lot of the, the meme shit that goes on on Reddit and stuff. When they released the UA 
for the next um the next edition they wanted to kind of run a lot of the playable races kind of through the planning phase again and what they did was they created a celestial race which is actually in previous editions called the ardling and it's not an angel it's not like an asmr at all the idea is if you think of the egyptian gods that have like the crane head the jackal head and that kind of thing so that's the race and you can choose whatever animal you want and so it was far more open for people to play all of these kind of half animal creatures but the fan base lost their shit that asmr wasn't included and so the Ardling has since been lost to Unearthed Arcana, never to be discussed again. Right, to so, be re-earthed. Th- there you go. Yeah. <laughs> they buried it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear. Okay. I would say this was actually pretty hard because I feel like they've covered all the barnyard animals just about. If you think in chicken, we got Aarakocra. Aarakocras but... are specifically... Okay, so... Everybody has their own opinion on what an Aarakocra should be. Specifically in 5th edition, an Aarakocra is a eagle, hawk, or parrot. Hard stop. Yes, I, I, I know that. But if I want to make a chicken character, I'll use an Aarakocra stat block. I think we actually did that for the campaign builder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so I have no problem with that. But I would actually like to see like a canine type of thing, not a werewolf. No, or, no I want to see something canine. The dogmen are have been weirdly absent. Hell, we have hyena men yeah. and a million different cat people. Exactly. Right? Like, where is there was a like a dog a dog thing? My thought when I was going over it is, you know, the other like slam dunk is pigmen, right? Like that's not yeah. a. It's not. I a was just werewolf. I was just thinking that I play a little bit of Minecraft and they're quite uh, common in that. But you I, know, I want to use it as a creature, not as a playable character. But the thing about it is, they're already they already exist. They've just evolved throughout the editions because orcs were originally pigmen that's what i was just thinking that too yeah Yeah. so orcs were porks until they weren't anyway before i go into that let's uh (laughs) let's cut to an ad break we've previously covered quite a bit in our discussion on player options in fifth edition for all those episodes and more, you can follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and dozens of other podcast apps. And if you'd like to support us, you can donate through the website, check our store, or join our Patreon and get access to other episodes and series. If you'd like to pay for some ad space on It's a Mimic, or just shout out to a friend, please reach out to us through our email and website that are listed in the show notes below. This week on the It's a Mimic podcast, we're going to sit down and do something. We will provide at least two episodes. But the thing is, what you guys don't see behind the scenes is that we are currently juggling a number of series, including we're in talks for potentially two or three new ones over the next four months or so that should be popping up. And we're in the time of year where everybody here is either getting sick or it's hunting season for Dave or... The kids are back in school, and so routines have to be reset. It's a state of flux at the moment. We're building up and gearing up for new things. Just as a peek behind the curtain, I'm currently trying to get the next episode of The Many Roads to Amelia up and running. And so, as we are in a bit of a state of flux at the moment, understand that this is just us finding our footing. And everything you've been promised is coming. It may just be a week or two late. I will tell you this. Besides this episode, you will get two more this week. One on the Patreon one on the public channels, and we're not going to allow our quality to dip any further than I normally do when I sleep through the editing process. Anyway, back to the episode. 
All right, gentlemen. So before we jump into this, I've got a couple of things to cover really quickly. And that is um, the fact that all of these races, these playable races, or they're going to be called species moving forward now. Um, Not lineages? No, lineages. Actually, we've been saying for the last few playable race episodes that... um, that they call it, you know, races or lineages. The only lineages that exist and never will exist are the three from Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Ah, okay. Because they come in part way through your character's existence and take over, right? So they rewrite, in theory, your character's um, history and backstory with a new kind of uh, template that, that sits over top of your your um, racial benefits. So. Um, so for anybody listening, that's the reborn, the hex blood, and the Dompier, right? So those are the only lineages. All three of our um, playable races today, the Centaur, Minotaur, and Satyr, they're all they all get the big reprint in um the Monsters of the Multiverse, uh, which our hosts cannot say. I have been editing long enough to know to pull out Monsters of the Universe, uh multiversal monsters. Um, like no one is able to say this. It's it it baffles me. Morning well, presents Monsters of the now. Multiverse. Uh, I try to remember who it was. Said multicultural monsters, like completely straight. Did not did not think that they'd screw that up. So um, anyway, Megan's uh, Monsters of the Multiverse. Is that yeah, <laughs> there we go. There we go. It's a mimic. Um, so one of the things that they've done is they've taken all of these um these creatures that weren't in the player's handbook. And they said, hey, you know, we're going to reprint them all. We're going to simplify it. And we're not going to have uh, these racial traits impact quite as hard. When we move into the next edition, it's going to be backgrounds that gives us things like stat increases, right? So if you're an athlete, you'll get plus two in strength, plus one in dex. So that's kind of how they're going to be leaning into the next iteration of D&D. For now, however, everything that we have here follows... Five basic rules, and you guys can rant about any one of them. We'll roll initiative here in a second. Let me get them out, though. The first one is there's no such thing as a standard racial stat increase anymore. Every race gets either two in any of your choice and one in any of your choice or one in three different choices. So you can have a plus Mm. one modifier in strength, con, and charisma. The next thing is everybody gets two languages, common and one that you want. The next thing is that uh, there are other creature types now beyond just humanoid. The other thing that changed is that everything has the same lifespan of about a century unless it's otherwise stated. Most of the stuff in this book is not otherwise stated. They essentially leave that out for gnomes, dwarves, and elves to be different. And then the last one is the height and weight of all creatures are essentially like a human's height and weight unless otherwise stated, which means something like a Goliath or a Warforge has the same weight as a Kenku or an Aarakocra. <laughs> so grab your dice and roll. Curious to, to know what you guys think about that. I got a four. I also I got, got a four. I got a 10. Dave, roll off. 20, not 20. Oh, 14. Yeah, save those dice for when you play, Dave. You you need them. Um, <laughs> Tyler, you're first. I have to say it's that stat. It's the the universal stat blocks of the plus two, plus one, or plus one to three different things. I get it. I, especially for new players, they've simplified it even more and give more ability to customize your character. But it it hinders the inspiration process, I find. Rather than helping it by trying to make it use your imagination to whatever you want. No, here's what you have. Use your imagination of how you can build your character centered around this. 
And so it does irk me a little bit. I've grown up playing D&D, and then suddenly it's just, we're going to give you even more customization. I just, I want to build it around the the species that I have here. I said it. There you go. I said it. Perfect. I, I'm building it around that, and so I want to be drawn into inspiration with that, including the stat block. I don't want just any willy-nilly thing. I'm not just playing dress-up. Dave, how do you feel about it all? I feel like only half of it is complete and it we don't have all of the information on it like we're we're it's moving towards uh and they're making it you know, kind of like this for now but we're not quite there yet right i agree with you 100 percent. this feels like a half measure it's a stopgap okay let me let me rant about something on a completely different semi um parallel tangent here for a second this feels like um buy one of those video games that isn't complete yet okay play a pay a premium price for the material that doesn't really get you all of the way there yet. Don't worry, we'll get you the rest of the material later in some sort of other book, DLC, other kind of thing. This is just another way to make you pay more money. And honestly, it's frustrating. It's just it's just a cash grab. If I can be honest, I think it's a knee-jerk reaction as well. I think they were always going to do this, uh, this book, because they wanted to streamline all the stuff from Volos and Morden Canons into one book. But they cut out the lore because of all the heavy pieces on hags, which uh, I've heard, or rather I've read, um, is um, misogynistic. The stuff on drow, which is racist against black people. The stuff on um, orcs, which is racist against either African tribes or Native Americans, depending on who's ranting when. So they went and they gutted a bunch of the lore out, but instead of uh, of saying, you know, sometimes it could be this and sometimes it could be that, and in this world it's like this over here, if they had added more paragraphs of this is what drow are like in this setting, this is what drow are like in this setting, this is what they're like in this setting, and giving you options instead of taking it away and making it all vanilla as fuck, this wouldn't have been an issue. They're putting all of the weight on the players now to come up with inspiration for characters. Now, there's a real like solid critique of fifth edition that they put all the weight on the dungeon master to do shit as well. They don't provide us inspiration or mechanics the way that they have in previous editions. In Agreed. previous editions, they've given us so many books with so many options about what you can include in a game. And they don't really do that here. They haven't done it essentially since the dungeon master's guide. Every once in a while, you'll get a piety or a reputation system or something, but like, there's no, there's no DMG two that helps you. And like, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. And, and we're missing that. That would have been more useful or a spell compendium that brings it all in from all of the different books. Oh, that would be nice. That would be way more useful than a monster compendium, because as much as this was good bringing a bunch of the monsters together, most people already own Volos and Tomophos, but they didn't own all of the monsters that are in the 10 million adventure guides, right? So all of the modules and adventure paths that are out there that have, you know, the 25 monsters in the back of the book, that should have been compiled into one big one, right? So Absolutely. So mm -hmm. I've got a lot of problems with this book in the general design of it. Also, the homogenization of all of the creatures drives me nuts because they did that across the board, except with the creature types, where there's a bunch of shit that's no longer humanoid. Dave, I don't know if you caught this, hobgoblins are fey now. This shit drives me nuts, because how many spells out there say, target one humanoid you can see within... That was, yeah, something I wanted to bring up as well. Like, you can't have this core mechanic of the game, and then halfway through decide that you're going to change it. It fundamentally changes everything else, and that's not good. This is why... I think that it's a stopgap, a, a knee-jerk reaction that pushed out the door as quickly as possible 
so that they could tell everybody, hey, we fixed all of this problematic shit we've done. We were going to save this to be the new monster manual to be backwards compatible for whatever the new edition is. But here we rushed it out the door with what feels like first draft art a lot of the time. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's, yeah. It's like, before the, the art was underwhelming. Yeah. And, it's not bad. It's just, it, eh. it's weird because the art is what they've done really, really well in the majority of the other books recently. The last couple of years, the art has been the thing that makes me want to buy the book. Not in this. I have been underwhelmed across the board on this, and I'm not a big fan of it, but we're going to get into it with all three of these um, these playable races today. And so we're going to grab dice and roll and see who's going to cover what first. You guys have any, any final thoughts before we, we jump into this? Lots, but I'll just drag this out longer than we need to. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Save it for your editorial later, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's roll. Eight. Nine. Two. Wow. And nobody over a 10. That's that's great. I have not rolled a but I might as well be rolling a D6. I mean, feel free to. Uh, all right, Tyler, you're first. What do you got? All right. So today I am covering centaurs. And these things actually I'm quite excited for. Um, first off, just looking at what these things are, everyone knows they're half human, half horse. We've seen these things in movies and books, pop culture, everywhere. Everyone knows what a centaur is and what it looks like. But according to uh, Monsters of the Multiverse, instead of it being human the waist up, they say it's elves. And so that that, that caught me on a, a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, I haven't heard that one before. It's yeah. because they have pointed ears. The satyr yeah, gets, that's the thing, gets the is, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and in if we were to look at Ravnica and Theros, they actually all say it's human with slightly pointed ears. Yeah, like it's the same shit. It was humans in the monster manual for satyrs, and then elves for all of the other. I stuff. don't inherently hate that. I kind of like the idea that we're getting something that's not just a half human because everything's a half human, right? Also, it ties them to nature, and that's you know kind of the deal with centaurs and satyrs. So I'm all right with it. Yeah, yeah it's I'm okay. It, it struck I, me as odd, though. Yeah, yeah, it, it did strike me as odd. What I would have preferred in this, and this is this is where I would almost encourage make it a bit more open ended, rather than saying it they are elves the waist up. Just say they look like elves in the waist up, but so that way it doesn't put them in the category of the elves or the waist up. No, it's, and, and try and, and try and force it into the category of, well, maybe they have elvish abilities. Maybe they have that. No, they don't. They just look like elves, the waist up. Imagine that however you want. However, if we look at the lower half, it is a small horse. I'm going to, I'm going to put that right now. It's about four feet tall. Have you guys ever been around horses before? Have you ridden on horses and been around them? Yeah, I almost got trampled by one when I was a child. They are yeah. much bigger than that. They are they are <laughs> flipping huge. I I ride horses and they are amazing, but dang are they big. It has to be to support my weight. Uh but they're a lot taller than just like the lower half of them is a lot taller than four feet. That's why it specifically says small horses, because there is such a thing as small horses, and that is about the size. So hold on, hold on. So far, I've come into this thinking we're going to get a half horse, half man, and I've gotten a half pony, half elf. Kind of, but it's it's kind of, think of in between pony and and horse. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so hold, yeah, on, hold on, It's a horny? Yes. Okay. I, no, I'm doing satyrs later. I was going to say, I got minotaurs, yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, one of the main reasons they did this, obviously, is to prevent it from being a large creature and also to keep within the same category as everyone else because the average height of these guys is going to be six to seven feet. It does specifically say that. So it's going to be a bit taller than the rest, but not overly as much. And the fun thing about it is they can vary in colors. Uh, It's essentially it's a horse. They're not all the same color. There are so many different types of horses out there, so many different uh, patterns that they have, the the their the configuration of their fur, everything is so different. So I find it interesting. And actually, in Theros, it says that some actually paint their humanoid skin to match the Equian half. So I, I find that oh, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty fun for those diehard centaur fans of I don't want to be uh, upper elf. But one thing that these guys love is open spaces. As you can imagine, they like to run. Horses are big. They need that space. Even a small horse, you might think of a person who's six to seven feet tall. Oh, yeah, they're pretty big. Well, they have a big back end, too. Think of this. It's a horse rear end. It's big. They need yeah. space. So on the map, they're still just a one by one square, though, right? Like yeah, in, they, in previous they editions, they would have been a one by two. There's no, yeah. there's no such thing in fifth ed. They're all square. There's there's no such thing. Exactly. As a, it's all it's all five foot square. But I would or, imagine or, I think or if, ten I think, by ten, right? Like there's no yeah. five by ten anymore. That's from yeah. previous editions only. I feel like that's but lacking. I, I, yeah. It, uh, yes and no. For combat wise, I I like that, but I want for exploration and for social to keep that in mind. Sure. That you really have to think of that. That's fair. I do but, a lot of combat in my games, so it's kind of more leaning towards that one for me. Absolutely, that's fine. You do you, Dave. <laughs> I will not comment any more on that. <laughs> no, I appreciate no, that. No, nobody else will. Oh, <laughs> so where's Dan when you need him? Huh? Not here. So, but if we look at the lore of these guys, because we now we know what they kind of are physically like. That from D and D five e. What does five e give for us for lore? Well, monsters of the multiverse. Thank you. Because you have provided us with so much to go off of. Yes. (laughs) It tells us that they come from the Fey realm. Okay. Yes. Uh, It it also says that from many different realms, there's many different ones. But in this realm, they they mystically resonate with the natural world. Okay. Fine. Word it however you want. But that's it. That's all they give. Sorry if I misled anyone there. No, that's all they give. But one thing I do like is that we do have these other sources in 5e that we can go to, like Ravnica and Theros, which gives us a little, actually, I don't want to say a little bit more lore, a fair bit more lore in comparison to others. Because we can, if we look at the, if we look at Ravnica, for example, we see that they are, they nearly ritualize this idea of life and growth so much to the point of whenever a a foal, which is a baby centaur, is born, there's a massive celebration. Now, I I think of this, and when I think of massive celebration in D&D, I don't think of, hey, about two or three hours of congratulations, yay, hey. No, I think like a week-long party when I think of a massive celebration, and that the, that's what these guys would do. And so they love this idea of life. And, and growth in nature. But they also have a, such a reverence towards history and the lessons that are learned from it. And so because of the this yearning for knowledge and this history and that they love life and growth, 
they have this wanderlust about them to experience the boundless wonders that life can can give. Again, yeah, this is all from 5e, which I'm thinking that that's great. That gives me something to go off of. They also have a lot of respect for family and familial ties. So if you befriend one of these guys, almost as like almost becoming part of the family, so to speak, that's like lifelong friendship and it keeps going onwards. And lastly, one thing about these guys is they do not stay in one place for long because, well, they're horses. Trust me, to get a horse to stay still, just to stand still, I can get a photograph of you, stay still. No, that doesn't work. No, <laughs> trust me, I've tried. No, they do not stay in any place for long, these centaurs. It, like these, I guess these families or the however group you want to call it, they don't stay in one place for too long. They move on. That's all from 5e, which I'm like, that's I'm happy with that. From I have to look at different sources within 5e, but you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the amount that they gave us. And there's even more about the, the different sects of the different one. That's S-E-C-T-S. <laughs> Just to clarify that. Yeah, the, the magic settings are really good for the centaurs. Uh, whereas in D&D, we've got, you know, the core races, the dwarves, the elves, and so on. Uh, in magic, centaur is one of the core races. So it really yeah. pops up in every one of the settings. And I think they've... They've really represented it well. Uh, they've always kind of been like a green white, so like of nature and history, and like you said, it, it's they're they're like a force for good kind of thing, right? Exactly, uh, yeah. Or a, a force for uh, nature and natural and kind of the neutral side. Yeah, you know, in in their actual lore, they're a lot rapier than that. Like in in the real world lore, they're like oh yeah, like they're they're real upsetting and scary. They are yes, and that's. I found that interesting that if we look at pop culture uh, or what we see in movies and everything, they're they're not as happy as D and D puts it to be, but they are a lot more stoic. That they're um, very territorial. They're like a warrior yeah. kind of race, and they're and they will like I don't know how else to say it. They're rapey as fuck in a lot of fiction. So yeah. Oh, well, he, here's the other thing too. I find, and this is actually from previous editions, um, all the way back to like. Uh, AD&D, because centaurs have been around a long time, but this idea that they are a powerful and a proud race, and they strive for this idea of a a peaceful balance between all things. This kind of gives me more that that feeling of what we see in pop culture, this idea of that they can be stoic, that they can be scary because they are trying to keep the peace of all things. You are not going to interrupt it. But one piece of thing I really liked, though, is because they're horses, horses eat a lot. Now, I imagine these guys maybe have two or three stomachs because you've got the upper half of a body, but the lower part of a horse. I imagine that. So they probably eat a lot. And so they have a tendency to overindulge in many things with their large appetites for especially wine and alcohol. And this is where you actually, they're prone to aggression and violence when they're drunk. And I thought that was just hilarious. I'm like, I would totally play that up. Absolutely. Yeah, I can so, see them like tripping over their hooves and stuff like that, kind of stumbling oh, around. Oh, yeah. They're not just stumbling <laughs> around. They're stumbling sideways, like, oh, they can't walk in a straight line anymore. What do you mean? Oh, I'm fine. Standing in a tavern and the tail just like flicks out and knocks a drink off the table behind him. Yeah. <laughs> I just I can imagine just like just taking a shit in the middle of a in the middle of the tavern just because they don't even realize it. <laughs> Gross. 
So I I do a lot of world building and um a lot of my world shipping in taverns. A, a lot of my world building is based on on building civilizations that make sense in a D&D world, cities and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Centaurs are a fucking problem for me. And it is all bathroom related. You have to have a specific kind of bathroom for them. And I and you'd think to just have a grate because I mean horses poop wherever they don't need a toilet. But you can't have a grate. They're freaking narrow ass hooves that fall through them, right? Like uh, centaurs you just have a stable. Fire. Like centaurs, small creatures, large creatures, and now thank you, wizards, plasmoids all have waste disposal issues that I I have run into trying to design this shit, and I'm like, you know what? Okay, okay, pretty- no, no, they they solved this problem for horses in like the 1500s. Okay, there's a little bag that sits behind the horse. You go on one of those like carriage rides around Stanley Park downtown. They yeah, got the true. little bag behind it so that the horses aren't shitting all over the road. You like, go ahead. You tell a like, player no, no. that... All you... right, Centaur, you want into our city, put on the bag of shame. No, no, no. No, you go ahead and you tell your <laughs> player, their, their, their illustrious level eight fighter, that they have to wear a colostomy bag. In... No, no one is no one is going for that. Oh, I'd tell Kyle to do that. It'd be fine. Well, I, okay. Kyle's not a real person, though. <laughs> I would say it to get around that issue. If a player would ever bring that up, if they're not drunk, if they're fully in their mindset, I would say go to the stable. That's where you go. That's I'm not going to create a, another bathroom or a grade or anything because I again I I volunteer at a ranch sometimes and I totally get what happens with horses. And so if a player is intelligent who's playing a centaur and, and they say uh, my character is neat. My character needs to use the facilities. Where do I go? Go to the stable. I would then declare loudly as the player, that's racist. And I would bury my great axe in the bar and say, you'll provide me with a decent place for a thinking sentient being to relieve themselves. Then I'll give them a bag. Well, now we're back to the colostomy bag issue. (laughs) I mean, bag of holding, right? There's a market. There's a market here. (laughs) No, but like, I I think, I think the point remains. The point remains is that, when it comes to places like Theros, which have all sorts of centaurs within their their cities, they would have come up with a permanent solution to this. Yeah, they would have. Uh, no, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. But it, yeah, I don't like centaurs in a urb in an urban area. I just don't like it. I prefer them in the wide open spaces. That's where they want to be. I was gonna say that's what they prefer too. They want to be out running through the fields, not. Trumping exactly. around the cobblestones of town. Yeah. They'll make their they're gonna make they're gonna make their own tavern that's wide open. It's open-ended. It's just a big tent. There you go. But that bring kind of brings us into the stereotypes on which we talked about some already. But when we think of stereotypes of centaurs, we see pop culture, we see all this, and so we can see that they can be strong-willed, they will do things and they don't want anyone else to change it for them. Especially if you think of centaurs who are religious, they're very set in their ways. You're not going to change their mind. However, I want to focus more on the horse aspect of stereotypes and kind of what horses would do. Not just the the upper half elf, but as a horse, I want to really go into those stereotypes. For example, the allure to food and drink. When you're riding on a horse and you suddenly stop, if you're on a trail ride, for example, and you stop, your horse is going to want to try and find the closest bit of grass that it can suddenly just bury its head down and try and eat. And you have to, with all your might and strength, pull it back up. Say, no. So I can imagine. uh, Sorry, I just got to interrupt you. I would, 
I would hazard someone to be really careful about this, the the leading too hard into the horse, bull, or goat thing. And we're going to talk about that today. But there are some people that are like very much, no, my centaur is a human first, horse second, right? And so oh, yeah. I, 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 I like where you're going for inspiration on, on character building. But for DMs that are sitting there going, oh, yeah, and they they all like to sit by the watering hole. And, the, and it's not really, they're not horses, right? Like you have to build them a true civilization. Oh, gosh, I agree. But I, I just picture this idea of suddenly they catch the whiff of like, uh, apple crisp and they're like oh dang that smells good but where, where is that coming from and just they're suddenly distracted by the scent of this amazing food not that it's not that they're doing this all the time not whenever they stop but they're more easily distracted with fresh food that they can smell but also this idea that they're not going to stand still for a long period of time i, I would really play into this I, myself personally if i was a centaur your evil villain could be doing the monologue. Your centaur, it, it might be tethered. Uh, you might have tethered, tethered their attention, but they're not going to want to just like stand there and listen. They're going to want to like move around a little bit. You know, just, just it's like a persistent thing. They want to move. And that's what I think as a stereotype. Uh, one that I really like though, and this is very true for horses and people too. Lots of people is the personal bubble. Horses do not like it if you invade their personal bubble without them knowing. You can easily be kicked. You can easily get hurt. So I would imagine Centaur is very much the same thing. They have the personal bubble. No, you can't ride me. No, I am not a pack mule. No, you you stay away from me. And don't walk behind me, right? <laughs> For several reasons. Yeah. Because of but, the poop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I, I would have my character set because I poop. Uh, don't walk behind me. <laughs> yeah, they do seem like they've got kind of like the... Uh, the attention span of almost like a toddler where they can be drawn away easily. Exactly, yeah. As for if we were to look at the, would we call this species bonuses now, I guess? Yeah. No, we look for, at... for our intents and purposes, for the people listening to this, uh, we're still in 5th edition, so we'll continue to call them racial bonuses, I guess. Okay. For the racial bonuses and mechanics of these guys, they are considered a medium creature, which we we spoke about already. But they are still pretty big. For a medium creature, it's not your standard size that Monsters of the Multiverse has said that all of them are now. These are a little bit bigger, and they can be pretty imposing. But one thing I really like is their walking speed is 40 feet instead of 30. So you have that extra 10 that most other species don't have. Most other are 30 or 35. Centaurs are 40. They have this uh, fun charge mechanic that lets you, if you're move 30 feet in a straight line and then you hit a target with a melee attack if it succeeds you can then use your hooves as a bonus action to cause an additional 1d6 uh bludgeoning damage in place of an unarmed strike which usually does 1d4 now one thing that i do find is interesting is due to the uh, equian build they count as a large creature when it pertains to carrying anything even though they detest being a pack mule, even the consideration, no. But they can they consider a large creature for this. Or if they need to move something by pushing, pulling, or dragging, they're considered a large creature, which I find very beneficial. If you use your imagination in the right way, this can be almost game breaking. Uh, it is game breaking because it's not quite as intense as what the Goliath and the Furball can do. They can also lift like they're a large-sized creature, but 
I deal with that shit all of the time with yeah. Dan playing a furbolg. I can lift it. I can lift it. I can lift it. Man, if you wanted to be a barbarian, play a barbarian. Stop this shit. <laughs> what I really like, though, is they thought of the opposite. They gave this really big thing, but horses, when it comes to climbing, they don't really. They, I don't think I've ever seen a horse try to climb like other than trying a really steep hill. And even then, it's a little sketchy. But I've, in, in, I've seen horses go upstairs. I don't think I've ever seen a horse go downstairs. I have. You don't want to. It is sketchy as anything. Oh, my gosh. Trying to lead them down because, yeah. Cool. But what they have done is usually for climbing for creatures, it's half your movement. What they have said is instead of it for every one foot, it's an additional foot. For every one foot, it's an additional four feet. So you're climbing, I believe, if my math is correct, at one eighth the speed for climbing. Just don't climb. Just just don't find another way. <laughs> just hoist get hoisted up by the barbarian, yes. right? Exactly. Yeah. Just here's guys, I have my ropes in my bag because I can carry as much as I want, but take my ropes and just hoist me up. <laughs> but if we think about role playing, and that's the thing is I I love the idea of role playing and exploration. And so uh, as if you're role playing this race, I personally would embrace this wonderlust that they have of life and growth. Just the idea of nature around them, that they want to know everything, you want to explore. But whatever it is you choose to be, to stick to it. Because centaurs are very much, once they have one thing in mind, that's what they want to go towards. They're not so easy to change their opinions on things. This, this, however, comes with a caveat of don't be a dick. Yep. Well, it comes with that. But I also find when you're playing with players, it's suddenly a, oh, yeah, you know, you changed my mind. I'll go with that. You know, I'll do that instead. No, stick to what your character believes and be willing to move around. But still focus on who your character is. But as I said, Adam, don't be a dick about it. With these guys, I would say above everything else for role playing, think exploration. These are like your exploration species. They they love nature, they love life, and they love being out in the open. Use these guys in exploration. That's almost what they're built for. If you, they're, they're great for social, but they're not great in confined spaces. Combat, well, that's most races you can use for combat, but these guys are great for exploration. But if we think about combat, though, I would almost want to think of that charge mechanic. I would want to make sure that if I'm playing a character that doesn't have bonus actions, I would use this mechanic. Otherwise, I wouldn't. But use that speed, 40-foot movement. That is big when you can outrun almost any most other things. And think of combat tactics outside of the general stat block. Again, these guys are great for exploration. Think outside your general stats. How can you use intimidation in the combat as you're charging towards an opponent? How can you use intimidation to affect the battle? Or using your size to your advantage, maybe pushing an object against an oncoming enemy or holding a door shut. Let's say you're actually trying to run away and you're barring the door as a large creature, preventing others from getting in. Think of how you could use this guy in combat outside of the general stat block. That's pretty much what I have for Centaurs, guys. What do you guys think? Well, let's grab dice and let's roll. All right. 18. 17. Three. Okay. Dave, you're first. Do you have any insights about what their settlement might look like for centaurs? Yeah, to me, these are going to be like um, large settlements outside of cities. Uh, They're going to kind of, in my head, they kind of roam the plains as more nomads than anything. 
and they're going to set up the big central tent where the whatever kind of government or leaders meet uh, and then the surrounding area around it. But I mean, these are big fabric tents that um, go up easy and come down easy, right? Uh, because these guys are kind of always on the move. That's kind of what I always envisioned for these things or for the for the centaurs. No, I would completely agree with you there, Dave. Like very, I said, sparse and nomadic. But one thing I'd almost consider, since they do have like these familial ties, maybe they have certain settlements that they all kind of return to. That's in their family. Go to this spot. This spot is always going to be a safe spot for you. And just that's kind of in their memory. And because it could be generations till they go back, till anyone goes back to that. But because of their love of history, they're going to know where that is. And to them, it's a space they know they can go. What's interesting is that as much as they like the open plains and the the ability to move quickly, um, and they like being out in nature, I think that they would appreciate things like roads. I, and it, I don't mean like oh, yeah. a cobblestone road, but like paths, like game trails. I think absolutely. that we're going to see them um, like to, yeah, they're, they're absolutely nomadic. I agree 100%. But there are probably four or five like important places all within a two-day trip. Um, this is where you go for, there's, there's an abundance of food. This is where you go for um, the good hunting lands. This is a good defensible position when the goblins show up. Right. This is where you go for uh, sacred rituals and rites. Like they're going to have their settlement is open plain, but it is like like six days in any direction. This is our turf. This is our territory that we roam freely. Um, and Absolutely. I think I also think they're probably moving in. I don't want to say packs, like or, or tribes even, but in small family groups, or they've got you know people on patrol. Like there's a group of soldiers on patrol i don't think you see more than like 20 centaurs at a time when they're out in their main not unless there's some sort of event right um just because again they're large creatures they're not they're medium creatures but they're they are larger than a human they've they need to eat tons so when i'm thinking like of of the resource management for them they're nomadic almost by necessity as well. Um, That's true. Just because they're not going to be agriculture is not going to hold a whole lot for them. They they can't grow food fast enough for and or or make settlements large enough. So um, it's interesting they like history as much, but I would make it an oral history because they're clearly not writing down a bunch of stuff, and it's just because they they don't have libraries because they're not building buildings, right? So a lot of the stuff that they would have would be. Pick up and take it with you. It has to be necessary because I'm going to be carrying this for the rest of my life, right? Remember, they can carry, they are have that large creature capacity of carrying things. Sure, but assuming that the large creature capacity is twice as much as what an average person can, Tyler, can can you carry all the shit in your house, on your back, even if we double your strength? Right? Like, it's, there's just, I I feel that that sometimes with my four kids. Well, we just have so many possessions. Like Dave, you do so much backpacking and outdoors hiking and all, yeah. all that shit. Like you know, packing light means a lot. And by the time that you're thinking about packing your fifth, sixth, or seventh hardcover tome, you're sitting there going, you know, I could be packing other things that do a hell of a lot more for me than, than this one. I can just remember the important parts and pass it on later. I think I think you're right. Absolutely. 
I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but I think one thing they would also have is they probably have cards that they're pulling. Yeah, like right, the but, but like remember, they're not the criminals. Sorry, because, Dave? Nobody, because the the centaurs don't like pulling and carrying, but they, uh, you know, that's their their punishment is you got to pull the carts for the for the tribe as we're moving on to the next place. I would say that it's like a lowly job. It's definitely like it is. Remember, absolutely, their pride is they are not horses. They may have horses or ponies. You know what? Strike that. They probably have buffalo and oxen. They probably so it's have not the same as them. Yeah, because yeah. because it's not too close to them, right? So, um, so I bet that they would have beasts of burden. Absolutely. Um, do you think they hunt with dogs? I mean, I don't see why not. Yeah, dogs are fast enough, right? Like, yeah, I just feel like that that if you have a centaur druid, are they going to have a wolf companion? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, like, see yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I can, I can see up, that, right? So. Yeah. Um, Dave, what party roles would they be uh, particularly well suited to fill? Think of like the the archetypes. I, don't know, I like the I like the idea of these guys being paladins and and being true to their oaths and their bonds, and they strike me as being very loyal creatures. Um, That's interesting. I was thinking like like scout, frontline, backline, spellcaster, medic, like that kind of stuff. What stands out to you for like an archetype? Uh I mean, these guys are our front line. I mean, these 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 are your cavalry, right? Like they're you, they hit a little bit harder. They're not your standard infantry, but they're gonna they're gonna come in and then hit and hit hard, and be mobile, right? Like that's the forty foot movement. It's the mobility right there. I think it makes them a little more uh, enticing to be a monk. You know, galloping around the open battlefield, punching your way through stuff. I, I wouldn't have it at the punching. I'd say the flurry of blows is their hooves. Oh yeah, that's a good point. You're you're probably right. I would I would probably make that work somehow. Tyler, what do you think? What party role uh, are they filling? See, I, I I could see them being frontliners and everything. Especially, I I, I want to build a centaur who's a monk who's using flurry of blows with the hooves. I love that. Just how that looks. But really, I also would think these guys as backliners, as uh, kind of your you all you guys that are with bows and arrows in the back. They are able to maneuver around the battlefield. They are able to move around. It's not the staying up front. No, they have battlefield control with their movement. And uh, whether it's a ranger or a druid, whatever you want it to be. But I like kind of these with their speed, I want that I want the battlefield control. Maybe a powerful so battle master. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because we've mentioned Marshall and we've mentioned we've gone around and hit everything except cleric for all of the divine casters, but we haven't even considered them for an arcane caster. Warlock, Bard, although College of Eloquence can make sense as they've got oral histories, right? But like like That's College true. of Lore as well. But like we're not hitting wizard and sorcerer and, and artificer with this, right? I don't see them as that. No, I don't either. I got no. a question though. If they're gonna do flurry of blows with their hooves, now a regular monk is standing on their feet and punching with their hands. So if they're flurry of blowing with the hooves, are they standing on their hands? Can we not call it flurry of blowing? Can we just strike <laughs> that if you don't mind? No. <laughs> oh, we we broke Tyler. <laughs> well, what I think, what I envision for Flurry of Blows, Dave, just to get the picture, is it's like a break dancing horse kicking everything. <laughs> no, I imagine it very realistically. It's they're turning around and back kicking you. Oh yeah, yeah, the double hoof. Yeah, yeah. because uh, I've been near kicked by horses before, and I have friends who have. They've gotten their shoulders, knees dislocated, 
broken with mm-hmm. a back kick of a horse. It's not a pretty thing. So definitely I'd use that as the flurry blows. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So this isn't on the list, but I have this question. Barding for horses costs a lot more than armor does. How do you guys feel about armor for your characters and how much it costs? Would you do barding on the back half of them or are you just doing like a breastplate in the top half of them? I feel like 5e is really good at hand waving that kind of stuff so i would just let it happen you have your armor moving on right there, there's a range for armor like the, the things have a cost range it's going to be on the upper end what i would do is i would i would let my characters think about that i'd say what armor are you getting oh i'm gonna get this armor okay so your chest is covered in this and i want to see if they catch it because if they don't catch it that's on them i i really enjoyed when i had a loxit on in the party i really enjoyed all the shit we got up to with the trunk um when we had <laughs> um uh, the leonin in the party i liked the claws and the that kind of feature like i like leaning into it a lot of the time so if i had a character who wanted to look into barding and armoring you know the bottom half i would absolutely say you know what sure absolutely do do your thing um we can spend a little bit more money to do that but the armor that goes towards your ac like all that all that shit is flavor the armor that goes towards your your ac is the armor that's on the human half right or the elven half i guess um my other question is what about a lance because you have to be mounted in order to not get disadvantaged with a lance in fifth edition can a centaur use a lance in your opinion no i uh, same reason dave uh, you, the idea to me is that you're gonna if you, if you are a knight sitting on a horse holding a lance, the position that you are sitting in is allowing you to get that giant back end of the lance nudged in between your hip, your leg, and your arm, and you're holding it in there just right. Right? You are not free handing a lance. The thing's freaking huge and long and pointy. Well, maybe not always pointy, but like they're they've got some heft. You you don't wield that like a sword. You hold on and hope it doesn't fuck you up when it hits. Okay. Yeah. So I know I don't think that you're just gonna be able to tuck that under your arm and run at them as a centaur. I would almost treat I, I agree with you, Dave, but if I have a character who's very adamant that, I know it would like, look so is, cool. <laughs> well and or the thing is I would make it work that sure, yes, but I would I would say you can do this, but this is what it's going to look like. Maybe it's going to take both their action and bonus action to use this thing because it's that much attention that they need to give it to it. Yeah, if I mean, they yeah. really want to. Alternately, it's just disadvantage, right? They can still use it. Oh, so, that's yeah. The, the other sorry, the other side of it too is that it does one d twelve and has a ten foot reach. If you're a medium sized creature. I could give you the 10 foot reach, but it does 1d8 because it's more slender or it does yeah. 1d12, but five foot reach, right? Like I would modify it in other ways so that it would be more wieldy, right? So I want to give the player the option to do it. If, they, if they're so adamant on it, I want to give them that. I don't want to just say no. I want to give them the ability to hit the flavor they want, but mechanically speaking, just freehanding, like Dave says, is intense. That's a bit insane yeah. unless they've got a strength of 20 and they're in tier three then i'm like sure fine fuck who cares the wizard over there is doing 12 d12 damage every other combat yeah, so. you can hold the lance without disadvantage yeah so <laughs> is it funny i'm thinking that if you you get barding armor and you get an attachment on the armor so that it's attached to you 
<laughs> I'd use that against you as a DM. Like that's all exactly well until it gets caught in the wagon going over the cliff. So <laughs> in earlier books, they would give us naming conventions, but they don't do that in the multiverse anymore. Did you run into the naming conventions in, in Theros? I did, yeah. What do we have there? Uh, Just really quick, do you have a couple of examples? Well, the, what I was getting from all the ones in there is they're very simple two-syllable names and usually ending on hard consonants like Torak or uh, Jethad, Merrick. Do they have first and last? Oh, sorry, no, sorry, no, my fault. That's that's different ones. No, it's very much Roman, like like Gaius, Diana, Tiberius. These are the kind of names of the for the centaurs. Yeah, the Theros stuff's pretty pretty Greeky. Mm-hmm. Very Roman or Greek. Yeah. Um. Do you guys have a uh, any other tips? I, uh, we've talked, uh, Tyler. You talked a lot about role playing. We've talked a lot about combat. We've talked a lot about satyrs for an hour. So. <laughs> Um, do we have anything, any other inspirations about what would be a good background for them? Is there a subclass that sticks out to you? I know Dave, you said paladin and clearly you were going for like a, a ranger idea there, Tyler, but is there any other like build inspiration that you guys have or role-playing inspiration that you would hand out, Dave? I mean, for background, these guys kind of feel like outlanders through and through. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty on the nose. Um, and I mean, class, subclass, we already covered it really. There's there's not, I don't think, too many opportunities for spell casting. Uh, not that you couldn't, but it just, I think it lends more to the, the well, tribal pack nature, more barbarian, fighty monk. You think that about literally everything, though. No, I, like the spell casting is divine. It's You can have a satyr druid. You could have a satyr yeah. ranger or a paladin. That's divine spell casting. But you're right, Dave. They're not making teleportation circles on the ground or, you know, any of that arcane shit. Yeah, they're not, they're not doing experiments of, uh, like, they're not an alchemist. So I feel like you could get some really cool warlocks if it was, like, a nature god or something, right? Like, yeah. go, like, the old classic Celtic druid feel with these guys with a couple of, like, a holy... Um, but, I mean, I guess that's that's technically, you know, a cleric. Yeah. I really like the idea for role-playing, the idea of that they're very set on one thing, but can be distracted by food because of the amount they eat. I, I just really love that for role-playing. Am I going to use it all the time? No. But I just like the idea that here's a little tidbit for you. Maybe it's a weakness, because we don't talk about characters with weaknesses often. We think that there's superstars and superheroes. What's their weakness? Fair. Dave, any thoughts? Not really. I feel like I pretty much... All right, cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So if that's it, let's move on to I think Dave, you are next with uh with yeah, Minotaurs. I got Minotaurs. Now there are four versions of the Minotaur. There's the one in the new Monsters of the Multiverse, there's Theros, Ravnica, and of course the original monster manual. I originally wrote down in my notes that I was going to focus on the one from the multiverse, but if I did that, I'd be done already. But essentially all four of them are they look about the same. Uh, however, the descriptions, the further back you go in the D&D books, um, the more information you're going to get. Just it's kind of the way they, they've worked this, they worked this out. Uh, they are half bull, uh, not half cow, half bull. So, sorry, you said they're they're half bull. Are they actually half? Like, are, is it, they're, they're like neck up bull, aren't they? Or... No, they're they're also kind of like ways down bull as well. They've got like the backwards knees. They've got the hooves. They do have humanoid hands, uh, but they are much bigger than than normal hands. 
they're they're quite <clears throat> beefy. Um, Fuck off. Uh, one of the descriptors that I, oh, I while I was doing my research was that they have kind of like the torso almost is ogre like in build, where they're they're large and uh, and just like well built muscular, like large thick arms and uh, and that kind of thing. Like these guys are bodybuilders, right? But uh, other than that, yeah, they are they are cow or bull like specifically not cow but bull. Um, they've got their unless horns. it's a female. They. <laughs> The only difference is they don't have horns, but they do specifically refer to them as bull-like as well. It's it's weird. So just to be clear, because I know tables will do this, your minotaur does not have an udder. Yeah, I guess I Thank didn't really you. think of that. No, it doesn't. So there um, we go. We can even... move along. You cannot milk a minotaur unless you're into that kind of shit. Well, I mean, you can, but let's not. Anyway. You can certainly try. It ain't going to do much. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they all pretty much look the same like that. The the Theros description kind of gets into how they might wear a little bit more uh, religious garb or, you know, have markings from their gods carved into their horns. Uh, Ravnica is kind of this kind of get into the same theme of it, uh, whereas if they're part of the particular guild, they'll have their tails clipped. Uh, so you can kind of tell them apart from other minotaurs in the same world. But the the one from the original monster manual uh, I thought was the best because they really get into it. These guys were born from demonic rituals. They're bloodthirsty, they're violent, and they're wild. And I didn't get that feeling from any of the other three. So the, the three playable minotaurs have a very different feel than the monster manual minotaur. Very like fundamentally different in that manner. Dave, how do you reconcile that? When you're DMing, if you've got a player who's a minotaur at the table, how do you reconcile this large-sized, you know, bestial version of it? Well, one of the pieces of lore that I came across was that minotaurs are capable of breeding with other minotaurs. So what I might do is have it where these these primal um, beast-like uh, ravaging minotaurs, the ones of the monster manual, these are the guys that were born of the demonic rituals. That's, you know, they're a little more wild in that manner. Whereas the ones that are more refined and civilized have kind of maybe had that demonic prowess bred out of them over years or the generations. Other thing, yeah. The other thing that leans heavily into that is uh, the, the demon Lord Baphomet. Who yeah. Like, the horned King. Yeah. But he also is an experimenter. There's also uh, Mephistopheles who I believe is an experimenter for the, archdevil side and who like experiments on people and shit some real like yeah baphomet is specifically quoted as the the demon king who made the first minotaur i would have that that lore be like hey he took minotaurs from the material plane or wherever they're from and warped them into making the first like nasty mythical beast minotaur well they were humanoid cultists that kind of came to him and he transformed them to make them these beasts of war right are minotaurs humanoid still huh i'm glad you asked <laughs> uh they are now they weren't before the the og monster manual is a monstrosity in fact it's a large monstrosity whereas the other three are medium creatures and they're all humanoids so that, that lore could still line up, was that these humanoid minotaurs were cultists. And then Baphomet's like, yoink, here, I'm going to do some experimentation on you. Yeah, but, it's not hard to, to make it work. Yeah, all right, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, like I said, the, in the multiverse, there's actually, like, no lore. It doesn't get into the Baphomet side of things. It doesn't get into any of the religious side of things. It does none of it. 
the Theros lore is, I mean, pretty much what you're going to expect out of Theros. It's all gods this, gods that. Instead of being made by Baphomet, they were made by Mogus or Mogus, however you want to say that, who's essentially the god of war. He's the Ares of Theros. Uh, in Ravnica, you actually get a fair bit of information from them. Uh, like I said about the centaurs, and it rings true for the minotaurs, they're one of the core races of the Magic the Gathering sets. There's a lot of Magic the Gathering lore. Every time there's a set of cards that came out, in my experience anyways, there's always been just chock full of minotaurs and and centaurs and satyrs. They are what, very... What, what colors are they normally? They're red? Uh, minotaurs, I have a minotaur deck and it's red-black. Um, there's one Minotaur that has Death Touch that's just unwieldy. So, and he gives every other Minotaur Death Touch. So it doesn't matter how much damage they all fucking die. It's just, it's OP, right? Anyway, anyway, I, I can go on about Minotaurs for a while. The um, the the Ravnica ones though. This is the first one where the picture of it in the book actually looks like a raging warrior. Okay, the axe is on fire. He's like yelling. It's just. The other ones in the Monsters of the Multiverse, it's fucking smiling. I know. I I that looked more like a cow person rather than a minotaur. Yeah, they they neutered them. Like in in Monsters of the Multiverse, they took that like raw flavor and that violent edge that minotaurs had, and they say, actually, here's the cow from the you know the laughing cow cheese looks like that. Yeah, it's, it's like totally they Disneyfied it. Yeah, like like through and through. It's just so happy and like that that is Bessie right there. That like the picture in the multiverse, her name is Bessie and she's a lovely girl. Okay. She bakes bread in her spare time. Okay. But that's not what a minotaur is. A minotaur is from Minos. This is a, the bull of Minos dropped into the into the labyrinth to instill fear in the, the occupants of the labyrinth. It was made to inhabit this this incredible thing that was created like it just oh no no it's just happy and smiling oh no no let's make it look intimidating and give it a sword i guess i think you right? got like, it doesn't to, have an axe minotaurs have axes i i feel like you've got to disconnect as a dm i don't mean you specifically i mean fuck maybe you no no yeah i should yeah yeah but uh but you have to disconnect the monster the monstrosity from the humanoid right is there anything about the labyrinth myth in fifth ed did you run across that day uh not particularly um yeah, okay like a labyrinth there, exists there's yeah. a there's a there's a little bit but we'll, we'll we'll get into that a little bit um the 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 ravnica back to the ravnica minotaur here these guys are the ones that use their fury and their tactics it specifically calls them excellent commanders they're slow to anger but they're quite violent uh but they like to laugh they're loyal and they come um normally from like one family line there, there's minotaurs of of history like famous minotaurs and you would claim to be a part of one of those lineages okay that's kind of how the, the ravnica minotaurs work and that's specifically to ravnica all of the minotaurs the first three are all like i said humanoid medium and they have a 30 foot speed but the monster manual ones they actually are large creatures and they have a 40 foot speed so they're a little bit quicker uh the uh, monsters of the multiverse sorry there's just too many m words for these book titles here the monsters of the multiverse uh they do get a horn attack it's a 1d6 plus your strength uh, and this essentially just replaces your unarmed strike they also get a goring rush if you dash and move at least 20 feet you can make one horn attack as a bonus action okay they get another ability called hammering horns 
which after you hit with a melee, uh, may, after you hit with a melee attack, you can use a bonus action to push your opponent up to 10 feet away. Uh, they have to make a strength save, which is just a D8. Sorry, the DC is eight plus your proficiency plus strength. So it's it's not bad. These, these guys are horny. <laughs> they really are. Like all three of them, like horn, goring, rush, hammering horns. But the, the most interesting one is the last one here. And that's the labyrinthine recall, uh, where they always know which way is north. And they get advantage on survival checks to track or navigate. Uh, so that's that's really your only labyrinth flavor is that particular line. And that's just the title of it. It's just they know where north is. You know what? I don't mind that, but I'm going to absolutely goddamn erase that if we're plane hopping or we're on a spelljammer ship. I oh gosh, am, yeah. I am going to erase it because there is another ability for the original monster manual, one with the exact same name, Labyrinthine Recall, can perfectly recall any path previously traveled. It's the same ability with a different effect. And I can't recall me seeing that before in 5th edition. We, yeah, you get that sometimes when they, you start to get playable races that are like, it's it's damned annoying. We're, we're going to we're gonna see that, um, how that's different for satyrs between a couple of books too. Um, or it's the same ability, but it's got two different descriptions. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Monsters of the Multiverse really fucked things around and made it complicated and confusing for no reason. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it gave them this Labyrinth Recall uh, where it was originally printed for the Monster Manual edition. Then they dropped it for Ravnica and Theros and brought it back for the Monsters of the Multiverse. But instead of doing that, the Theros and the Ravnica ones, the only real tangible difference is, is they get a strength plus two, con plus one for each of them. Uh, the Theros one Yay. has the horns attack, goring rush and hammer horns, but it doesn't have the Labyrinth Recall. Instead, it has imposing presence which you get proficiency proficiency in persuasion or intimidation, okay. right? And, and that's the same thing you get for the Ravnica Minotaur as well. Other than that, the only difference is, is they have a language common in Minotaur. So and it's, the, sorry, it's clear to me that they've made the Monster Manual one first, then realized when they wanted to do the Magic the Gathering crossovers, they're like, okay, well, we need to do Minotaurs. How are we going to do that? Well, it's a rewrite for playable characters. And then they're like, okay, you know what? We're going to do this brand new book and we're going to re- like compile them all together. People complained online. So how can we reconcile this and give us half and half, right? Mm-hmm. This it's is like such a different different cry from what the original Monster Manual was. I mean, you could tell it was originally meant to be something that you fought and then got turned into something that you can play. Yeah. Right? Like the original Monster Manual... Uh, Minotaur here. I mean, it's got an AC of 14, not particularly high, 76 hit points. That's fairly high for a CR3 character. And uh, I mean, instead of the hammering horns, it gets a charge attack where you've got to move 10 feet in a straight line towards the target. And then you have to hit with your gore attack and it'll do an extra 2d8 damage. And if the target is a creature, it has to make a strength save and it's pushed 10 feet and knocked prone. That is a clunky ability. It's you a have 3. to do this. Five ability, right? Like that well, feels. It, you, it does. You have to do this, but you also have to do this. And if this happens, then this happens. But if the creature, but if the target's also a creature, then it has to do this. Like it's just there's too many steps there. Fifth it, edition, it's, it's not fifth edition. No, it's not. That's exactly my point. Is like fifth edition has made its living on being short and sweet, and that's not what this is. So from that aspect, I'm glad that they moved away from it. But at the same time, they kind of took away what made the Minotaur the Minotaur. The the OG Monster Manual Minotaur has a reckless attack, which is straight out of the Berserk Barbarian class, right? You get advantage on melee attacks, 
attacks against you have advantage. I right? think I think orcs get that in the monster manual as well. Yeah, I think I you're think, right. They do. Yeah, I think that's that reckless is one of those ones like pack tactics that pops up a few times across different stat blocks. It, it's it, just, is, it was yeah. weird to see a class ability show up as a monster ability. I know it happens, but it's it is uncommon. And you can see that they've moved away from it. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, these the the stereotypical minotaur here, this this monster of the labyrinth that's made to instill fear in anyone that opposes it, is not the minotaur that we're left with here. Four books later, in a couple of rewrites, we're left with, you know, like I said, it's not even wielding an axe; it has a sword. I mean, we're left with Betsy. Yeah, it's just it's 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 a shell of what it used to be of what it should have been, right? These minotaurs are not happy. They don't get along with everybody else, right? They're large, they're gruff. You're not going to find these guys in spell casting schools or, or, um, or magic academies, right? You're going to find these guys fighting in the streets, brawling in the taverns, and I don't know, probably pooping beside the centaurs in their stable or wherever they, they get put. Again, Dave, that's every one of your characters. I'm pretty sure you played elves that way as well. <laughs> Wait, your elves poop in stables? Well, I mean, when you gotta um, go, you gotta go. Uh, do you have anything else on, on their mechanics, Dave? Not really, no. Which one do you like better? What's like what's your what should send what should uh, Minotaurs be? Uh a Minotaur should be what the original monster manual is, but I think fifth edition got closest with the Ravnica Minotaur. Was there a big difference between Ravnica and Theros? No, but it's just more of the lore is different, but not. It, the, it, it is uh, different. Like the the minotaurs are in in Theros are you know born by Mojus and like their their piety rules their life as does it in everything Theros related. So uh, when it talks about physical descriptions, it talks about the minotaur priests wearing ceremonial garbs, whereas in Ravnica it talks about the ones of the Boros clan having clipped their tails. Okay, right? so so they flavor them towards the setting, but I think like the the nitty gritty raw aspect of Ravnica fits a Minotaur a lot better than the piety laden world of Theros. I would agree with that absolutely. Yeah. Let's grab dice and ask some questions. Three, eight, one. I'm going <laughs> first. I mean, I'm still. I didn't roll double digits, but I'm so very fucking happy. Um, what would their settlements look like? Is the first question. Assuming you're taking them out of the labyrinth. Assuming you're taking out of the labyrinth, which what I is think settlements? You, I think you have to in fifth edition, unless that's part of the. Unless if I, I want to be clear, I put these guys in the labyrinth in Eberron. Remember, all the orcs are are they guard the labyrinth from the demon lands? Mm -hmm. I would put minotaurs shoulder to shoulder with orcs, and I often do when I'm playing because they've got a lot of the same tactics and a lot of the same kind of brute force feel. My my minotaur. Um, we also have the Garistro as well, who's like a really high CR um, demon, right? Who's very bull-themed as well, which is kind of like even further down that Baphomet experimentation in my head. Anyway, um, their settlements uh, for me don't look that different from a humanoid, like a regular humanoid settlement. I think they have buildings, but in, and, but in my head, they're very simplistic. You're not going to have grain elevators. You're not going to have a whole lot of pulley mechanisms. I don't see these guys having port cities necessarily. They could, but like they're not pirates. They're not sailors. Right? No, they're not. They're so, mainland. Yeah, so I, I really do think that they are comfortable in the foothills, 
comfortable even in some like mountainous area? Do they have dark vision? No, none of them do. Okay. Interesting. Not even the one in the labyrinth, eh? No, which I feel like it's... Oh, sorry, the one in the labyrinth does. Dark vision. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like, again, I feel like we're slowly... In my head, my narrative is that um, since Baphomet, you know, double-crossed them and started to make, you know, bestial uh, minotaurs, they have since moved further and further away from that and are now living out on the plains uh, as, you know, proud warriors. I'm still giving them temples and they still pray. They don't feel arcane to me by any means. So I'm not having colleges and what were their stat increases in Theros and Ravnica, Dave? Plus two strength, plus one con. Perfect. They're, they're fighters. Yeah. They're fighters. You can, you can say barbarian. Absolutely. Like, like, like lowercase F fighters. These guys fight. Right. So yeah, they're They're the frontliners. Yeah. Dave, what is it? What do you think the settlements have? Okay. I have a very exact idea of what these things look like. Uh, the movie Ravenous, they get to the outpost, the fort. Yeah. They, they live in a fort like that. Um, it is stone walls crudely put together. Um, but these guys definitely make walls, right? What, they like walls. What a deep cut, Dave. Ravenous. Best soundtrack ever in a yeah, movie. Well, I figured Ravenous, Ravenica, it just makes sense. There you go. Um, but the, um, you know, like I said, like the rough stone walls, that's kind of my my ode to the labyrinth, right? These yeah. guys like to be inside these stone walls. They're roughly built. They've got uh, wooden staves coming off of the edges. Uh, you walk inside to any one of the buildings, you've got leather curtains, like just a piece of leather hanging over the window. Uh, you've meat got, curtains, right? Yeah, essentially. <laughs> Fuck off. And uh, they've got the large uh, fire pit in the middle with like the forever stew brewing in the middle you know that kind of thing right so uh, it's it's very 18 early 1800s fort okay to me, if that makes sense that, 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 no, that absolutely does and uh, i'm i'm thinking along the same lines of both of you it's a simple settlement super simple uh but one of the big things i would say is like you said dave it's fenced in it's whether it's stone walls or a wooden palisade it's somehow it is fenced in to give this idea of almost that it's the ode to the labyrinth, but it's almost as if they have a fear of all open spaces and where they settle. They need to have that confining space around their settlement, whatever it is. I like the I idea think... of your level one party showing up in this minotaur fort uh, and they've got to like cat and mouse their way around this kind of thing, right? It's not a labyrinth, but you're essentially making it one. Honestly, I think that that speaks to the nature of them being melee fighters as well as not liking open spaces, right? Like, yeah. they're not going to want to be caught out on an open battlefield out in the plains and stuff. Even if they've got a city in the plains, they will wall it in. Hull walls, narrow spaces. They are pretty comfortable if both of their shoulders are touching a wall. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're used to being considered a wall themselves. Mm-hmm. When I look at the party roles, so here's the next question. The party roles, what would they be particularly well suited to fill? Um, I mean, they're frontline fighters. Clearly, they're frontline fighters. I don't mind them being a paladin or a cleric, even a ranger, but they're not a druid. Like, I don't see them ever being a full spellcaster. Um, a druid and- with shillelagh. Is there any other kind? (laughs) Um, I just, I feel like these guys are barbarian and fighter. And they are, they've got the gladiator background too, right? Like that's, that's what they bring to the table is I will be the meat shield and we will, 
you guys can can fight these things when I'm done tenderizing them with my knuckles. I don't mind monk for them either, by the way, just because I've got a lot of cool movement shit going on. So I would grab a monk and throw mobility feet on them, or the mobile feet, or sentry as well, just to, for like pure battlefield control. I think it would be really interesting with these guys. Yeah, they plug a hallway nicely. Yeah. Dave, do you yeah, have any absolutely. more insights on the party roles? Yeah, these guys are not spellcasters. I mean, I, I disagree. I think they could be druids. In fact, if they were going to be any kind of spellcaster, that's the one. You mean, yeah, like a full caster? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm fine. With that. Or they've fallen back into worshipping Baphomet and their warlocks. Yeah, yeah, of course. Kind of the dark magics kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they... they they are frontline. I wouldn't probably. I probably wouldn't make them a paladin unless they were like a paladin of Mojus and Theros or something like that. You know, you gotta theme it right. But they, sure. they're Theros aside, they're not particularly pious. Well, remember, paladins don't need gods anymore. If you're that, Dave. Okay. So they like, like I could see an oath of conquest, uh, oath of vengeance. Sure, you you could make. A half sorcerer, or half bard, minotaur, if you wanted, right? Like it's you can, you know, anything is possible. Just, I mean, the answer is you make them a cleric, so you've got a holy cow. Uh, and that's all we have for today's episode of the <laughs> podcast. Okay, next week, uh, where that's I will Tyler, not be in... here because I fucking quit. <laughs> Tyler, do you have any insights on uh, party roles for them, or have we pretty much covered it? I think we covered it. Like these guys are the tank, honestly. Like they, as you said, they can any character can be anything. But if we're thinking stereotypically, these guys are suited to be the tank, the meat shield. I'll draw their attention while you all do your other funky shit. They yeah, like you... the centaur, they're gonna be able to or wanting to carry the items too. They're gonna be able to be that little bit of a pack mule. Although they don't get that large creature um bonus because I mean they do get up to like eight feet tall. They're, That's they're bizarre tall. that they don't. I feel like they really should. Yeah, even like I felt maybe the monster manual one, the OG one could have, but but the problem is that that the playable race already gets so many other things that something had to give, right? But it's all uh, horn based. Take one of them away. Yes, I agree. Um, Dave, did were there any naming conventions for them that you ran across? Um, for Ravnica and for Theros, there absolutely were the the two monster books. Not so much the the Theros one was all. Um, PHs kind of thing. Uh, lots of Ks, Fs, Vs. Very Greek, you know. Yeah. Uh, some of the examples here we've got Dasdoro, uh, Tavromiki, Mike, Mike, uh, Bamvros, Nikavros. So very Greek themed, multi syllab like. Very yeah, yeah. Big very, age. very Greek. Yeah. Whereas the the um. Uh, Ravnica names are a little more guttural. You know, you've got things like Brogmir and Kalasmir and Yarvem and Kalka and Vrokia, almost almost Slavic. Yeah, cool. Right? Um, do we have any insights about role-playing or anything else that we want to point out with these guys before we move on to the last one? I would have told you to always make them big and ragey and violent, but apparently that's not the case anymore. So. Yeah, well, I would disagree with that. I would say it is. It, it does say they they are that, but it's not just that. They're not just ragey and angry all the time. It rather it says 
uh, that they're very passionate. And that's how I would play it, is these guys are very passionate in what they do and very expressive. They just tend to be angry a lot of the time. But whatever it is they're feeling, they're very passionate about it. Honestly, yeah. if I wanted to add another layer to them that isn't piety, if I wanted to grab onto something else, I would grab something like an honor system for them. I, I, I don't have any problem playing these guys as Klingons, right? Yeah. Just like... They that's a really fight. good comparison. They 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 will fight. They will headbutt. Clearly, that's probably their go-to move. Um, but they don't all necessarily rage all of the time like a barbarian. So um, one and... thing I would think. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. Well, yeah, I was gonna say for like combat. I know one thing that just inspiration for me is that battlefield control and the, the idea of pushing them into things, of pushing either people into rough terrain or into a pit. Yeah, or pin them in a corner, kind of thing. Your yep. DM is going to learn pretty quickly to not make encounters by ledges or by open fire pits or by pools of acid, right? Because you've got a lot of, of push the guy, you know, over there, right? And so I've learned that I've got um, a warlock with repelling blast who also has picked up telekinetic as a as a feature. So I, like I am just hyper aware of my environment now as a DM. Yeah, so especially the flyer as well. Yeah, yeah. Between the flyer and the fact that I've got a couple of people that have got this crazy increased uh, movement speed, like battlefields are very easy to design once and very difficult to make um, to have variables of it over and over and over again that are still interesting, right? So um, without me just like clearly designing shit around my players. Um, but if we have nothing else, are you guys ready to move on to satyrs? You betcha. Let's do it. All right. So you want to play a satyr. That means that you're a biped with the top half of a wood elf and the bottom half of a goat. It says in the monster manual, like I said earlier, that um, it's top half of a human. Um, but no, uh, after um, Theros came out, th these guys don't exist in Ravnica. It's it's Monster of the Multiverse and Theros. And then there's the monster version uh, in Theros and in the monster manual. So um, it's unclear whether or not they have a tail in any of the art. Uh, but you definitely have ram's horns right below an average person's hairline and a little bit more spread out than your eyes are. Uh, also, you have four knees because you've got two that move forward like a human and two that are backwards below that like a goat. Um, and you also have hooves in case the goat part wasn't clear before. You're fey and you're from the Feywild. But wherever you go, you bring whimsy and revelry with you and you tend to make the places around you more like home. You tend not to have big, lofty goals, but you truly embrace the simpler parts of life. You're a medium. You can walk 35 feet, which is faster than average. And again, I think that's because of the... Well, there's a lot of movement shit with this guy. Um, you're a natural partier as well, and you have proficiency with performance, persuasion, and one musical instrument of your choice. You have resistance on saving throws against spells, and you can use your horns to make an unarmed strike with your action, and you do 1d6 plus your strength modifier... To calculate the damage that you do. When jumping, because of your powerful double knees, you can add a D8 to the amount of feet that you can jump, but it still uses your movement as normal. So increased jumping, this is the same thing I think the Herongon got later as well. And they were, are they fey as well? Tyler, you just covered them, didn't you? Yeah, they are considered fey. Okay, so very similar in that fey jumping mechanic here, so. Yeah, it is actually a very different mechanic, but it does give a 
something extra. Yeah, it's a it's similar in flavor, but a different. Yeah, similar in flavor, absolutely. So, um, that's it. That's what we get in the Monsters of the Multiverse. In the Monster Manual, we learn that most satyrs have facial hair and that they often get drunk on hedonism and don't give a shit about who they're hurting when they're like that. This is because we need to be able to fight them. They're in the Monster Manual. There are rules in the Monster Manual for satyr pipes, which are an actual item and instrument, uh, which allows you to charm, frighten anyone within 60 feet, or put them to sleep if they fail a save. Now, earlier it did say that uh, in the Monster of the Multiverse, it said that you're proficient with one instrument, and then they give us a satyr instrument in the Monster Manual. It's pretty magical, it's pretty powerful, but I would talk to my DM about maybe getting my hands on it at higher levels. In the Monster Manual, satyrs are chaotic neutral. They can move 40 feet instead of 35, and they have dexterity and charisma as their main stats. All of the um, all of the monster stats that we're going to get for them, because there are two in uh, Theros as well, they're all chaotic neutral. It's interesting because they go out of their way to say that they don't like law. It's, uh, it's just repeated over and over and over again in the lore. But it's, you know, they don't have respect for it. They don't like it, but they'll still follow it, right? They're not criminals. Um, it also says, though, that they're proficient in stealth, which means that, I mean, you'd think that with the chaotic, chaotic neutral and stealth, that you would necessarily be stealing, but like they're you're just not... trying to hide from the law. Yeah, right. It's it's about you first, law second. Um, you speak common, Sylvan, and Elvish, according to the Monster Manual. You get common and one other, according to Monsters of the Multiverse. And you carry a short sword and a short bow. And there's a challenge. They have a challenge rating of uh, one half in the Monster Manual. So that's kind of what they bring to the table. It's actually pretty palatable. You could really just play that and they would be shoulder to shoulder with your average player character. Not like the Centaur and the Minotaur who have much higher CRs, right? So when we then crack open Theros, things change. So there's no Feywild, so you're just from the wilds. There's a, a particular veil that, that you're from in Theros, um, but you're in all of the different cities and whatnot as well. You love actually the blending of nature and the comforts of civilization. So in my head, I expect that satyrs probably glamp in lavish motorhomes if they were in the real world. I I, I, I heard that pain. Uh, no, they're the guy that shows up and drinks everyone else's beer, eats everyone else's food, sleeps in Buddy's chair, and then goes home not thinking he did anything wrong the next day after making a complete ass of himself being drunk the night before. But he will never admit that he was an ass because he doesn't think he did anything wrong. No, no, and legitimately does not think so. No. To him, it's just a revelry. Exactly. Uh, the word revelry comes up a lot in the Seder lore in 5th edition. Um, in Theros... Satyrs have horns that actually wrap around the sides of their heads uh, and start at the base of their skulls, and they point upward and a diagonal from above their eyes. So, like, they're far like beefier uh, horns than they are in the Monsters of the Multiverse. I agree. A lot I really the... like that artwork. Sorry, I really like the artwork of there in Theros. Yes, I think it's a lot more interesting and evocative. Again, Monsters of the Multiverse kind of let us down. So. A lot of the attitudes are the same with you embracing life and not being too serious, but you're a little more chaotic as you have a general dislike of things like rigid corners and sharp angles, uh, philosophers, and law. Again, you're not a criminal, you just don't love rules. Your goal is to live in the moment. 
Don't dwell on the past. Don't worry about the future. To some outsiders, this feels a lot like debauchery. But for you, this hedonism is more about relaxation, fun, and pleasure. You just don't have any use for social standings, honor, uh, riches, or wealth, right? Like, it's about having a good time right now. There is a D8 table um, for Seder eccentricities. And I'm going to roll on it because there are a couple of interesting ones. I'm going to roll once for each of us to find out what kind of Seder we would be. So uh, for Tyler, a three, nothing wards off bad luck like a jolly dance. Amen to that. Dave, I rolled a two. There isn't a tree or statue that isn't fun to climb. Truth. And I rolled an eight. If I have something really important to say... I always make sure to sing it. Uh, the other one, by the way, that I think really stands out to about half of our um, podcast hosts is, if stumped, I smoke a pipe. And if I'm going to smoke a pipe, it's going to be a splendid pipe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. there's some cool shit of this that I quite like. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump ahead and just get the names out of the way right now. They have different female and male names, but no family names. There's no surnames here. So for the female names, it's a lot of stereotypical female names like it's avra chara yana uh nikki uh tasia like they're soft sounds yeah soft sounds lots of vowels yeah and always ending in an i or a or combination of the two when it comes to male names we get things like again we're back into the greek themes omeros spyro is one of them xenon uh kyriakos like it's very very greek themed here um but then we get nicknames like and i want you to understand i didn't write this and i'm pretty sure that if you gave a satyr one of these names they might castrate you in your sleep like scruffle butt skip hoof or clip clop i'm telling you now if you call my npc satyr clip clop we'll murder you <laughs> that is i like scuttle butt <laughs> scruffle butt like there, there's some other ones too. Honestly, the one that I like the best is Nobblehorn. Jesus Christ, <laughs> full of flanderisms. Yeah, right. Also, I think that uh, orange beard is is offensive, but that's just me. Uh, I mean, I think people with orange beards are offensive. Bring it. <laughs> um, when it comes to Theros, we actually get to find out that. These guys were designed to have plus two in charisma and plus one in dexterity. That's kind of the flavor we're going with here. It really which makes sense because their bardy is all fuck. Um, yep. Also, they're usually chaotic good, according to the lore. But, like, you do whatever the hell you want, right? Everything else says chaotic neutral, but we lean good when we're playing them, apparently. Uh, your ram attack is 1d4 plus strength instead of the 1d6 that you get in the um, multiverse. Resistance against spells is still there, but when it comes to the Theros one, and here's why I say use the one in Theros, yes, you do less damage with your horn attack, but you're not going to be using it outside of tier 1 anyway, because you don't just have resistance against spells, you also have resistance against other magical effects. And that is fucking important if your DM is using Monsters of the Multiverse because no one's casting spells anymore. That's true. You uh, also get Common and Sylvan. You don't get to choose another one. That's just what you get. There's a little blurb here uh, off to the side which kind of gives you an idea of how Satyr's mentalities work. Uh, and it is the myth of Xenagos, the Satyr God. And I'm going to boil this down really quickly. He was the most Satyr Satyr that ever Satyred until he became disillusioned with the fact that gods require mortals to pray to them in order to exist. This made Xenagos um, a, a little offended. He thought that the gods were lying to mortals 
So he tried to become a god himself in order to teach them a lesson. Long story short, the gods are like, fuck you, no, let's stab you through the heart with a spear. So, interestingly, many satyrs actually remember Xenagos fondly as someone whose pranks even got the attention of the gods. But that means that they remember him, and you got to keep in mind that we discovered earlier that all of their lifespans are like 100 years old. So this recently happened. They tend to look at his story as a good example of why you shouldn't prank anyone with maliciousness in your heart. And also, it's a good example of how a good prank is a prank that everyone enjoys, not just you. So, yes, you're into pranks and dancing and revelry and bullshit like that. However, you're there so that everyone has a good time, not just you. And that's an important distinction to make for a satyr, because satyrs are problematic. Kind of like Kender, uh, Kender are at face value, like previous versions of them. At face value, they can be a pain in the ass. So be very careful when you choose to play one. Um, you're there for the whole party, not just for you. Also in Theros, it gives us two kinds of satyrs that are monsters, the Reveler and the Thornbearer. And they both speak common in Sylvan. They both have 40-foot movement speed, just like in the Monster Manual. Uh, and they are chaotic neutral and are immune to magical sleep. The Reveler has the ability to charm up to four people if it dances for more than a minute and mostly uses the dance uh, to get people to party with them. Uh, even if that means that the new friends would do things they normally wouldn't do because it would embarrass them. So you dance, they have to make a save, or they are charmed for up to an hour, um, and you just make them dance belly dances when they're like proud paladins or stuffy barbarians, right? Um, revelers are CR1. The Thornbearer is a bit different. They're more of a protector of nature and warden of the wildlands that they live in. Dave, this is a lot like your fairy character right now. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I'm getting that. Uh, they've got a multi-attack, uh, which gives them like the CR2, but they also have a special attack as well. It's called Hail of Arrows, and they can do it once uh, per rest, either short or long. It essentially turns a single fired arrow into a bunch of arrows in a cone attack that forces a DC 14 dex save that results in 5d6 piercing damage on a successful save or half, or sorry, on a failed save or half on a success. So, I mean, that's a lot, especially for CR2. Um, I do like that there's a variant of Seder that isn't just about being a frat boy, right? Where you can actually have a little bit more of a civilization, a protector of, of the Seder lands. Like, you got the bouncer to the orgy, right? So, um, <laughs> Which they all need one. Now, yes, absolutely. Speaking from experience. Anyway, um, I bring up the idea of the orgy because here's the part where you can skip ahead a couple of minutes if you're uncomfortable with this. Um, satyrs are inherently sexual according to their real-world lore. They're not that way in 5th edition, but according to Greek myth, satyrs are always male. And they are nature spirits with ears and a tail resembling those of a horse. They also have a permanent, incredibly large, exaggerated erection. Some sources call them fawns, not fawns with a W like, like baby deer, but F-A-U-N-S. Um, it's just another word for satyr. And uh, some of them have horse legs um, to go along with the tail and the horse ears. But over time, over centuries, the... Description of them has changed, and you can actually find stuff from like 500 BC and later um, where they're actually depicted with human legs. So the only thing that, that's really about them is that they've got horse ears, a horse tail, horns, and a big throbbing permanent erection. Um, half of the artwork that I saw of classical like pottery and, and etchings and whatnot are them gripping it and like 
looking at it. So they're very much about this hedonism and debauchery in the real world. I would not include that in my D&D game. Neither would I. I would pull back on that. Um, I did have a satyr NPC show up in my last campaign who missed his wife dearly and had erected statues of her, and she was incredibly well endowed in all of them. And the bronze statues were particularly worn in the chest and butt regions where he would just go over and hold them and cry and miss her. And then eventually they found the wife, and she missed her husband, and he had a big, massive erection on the front of his statue, which was all worn to hell. She would cry because she missed him. I added that, but I knew my table. I knew that wasn't, like, I could get away with that. We all had a good laugh about it. We moved the fuck on. And it was not a focal point. It was memorable. They will still mention it every once in a while. Like, Rizkin, that pervert, right? But uh, that was the joke. That was the punchline, and we didn't focus on it. We didn't make a session around that shit. Uh, so, like, session zero, and don't include that. I'm not going to play a horny satyr character, even if they're a bard. So I would agree, yeah. And think of it this way, too, is I think even in the book it mentions this, that it's not all about debauchery with them. Um, it, the, it's, it not does... all, it's only debauchery as far as outsiders looking in are concerned, right? It is always about hedonism, but hedonism isn't necessarily a big bad word it's just them enjoying and embracing the moment right and that's just it in the, yeah in i think it's theros yeah. that it, it talks about that how it's it's they're just enjoying life they're enjoying everything and it can be super peaceful too it doesn't have to be something that when you think about it it is ve- overtly sexual no as, is, a, as a matter of fact if i wanted to to play into that kind of like physical pleasure thing i'm going to lean into food wine and dancing specifically right like the yeah. satyr the satyr is going to lean in close to the character and be like how do you want to go upstairs and dance all night long and then it turns out you're actually doing a jig all night long right like it's <laughs> it's not actually the flirt you think it is so um let's grab dice because i have some questions all right two one i rolled a 19 so i waited until the very end for this so best for last um ask yourself questions what do their settlements look like i don't see them having a whole lot of the need of like privacy if they've got an area i think about it like this when you come across a satyr encampment it is a bonfire in the middle of a string of small like lean-tos and simplistic tents and maybe they did it around some ruins so that there's some walls around so that, you know what, this is boring. We can go over there and drink. Or, hey, let's go into this hut over here and we're all going to smoke our pipes together. Or, like, you can you can disappear from the party while still being in the party on the outskirts of it. But it's not like, well, this is my house. And down the street to the left is where John lives. It's none of that shit, right? So it's it's very much a party, like a almost like Burning Man to a very, very smaller degree. And not as much ecstasy. Well, no, not as much ecstasy. Are you sure? Um, not as much of the drug ecstasy. I'm sure that there is a little <laughs> pinky in the butthole ecstasy somewhere, but like Is that what that, ecstasy is to you? What am I doing it wrong? No. Do each their own. Um, but uh no, I do see like I really do like the um metaphor of the thorn bears being the bouncers on the outside of the party. We protect the ability. We respect and love the living in the moment, the revelry, the party, and we're going to host it. 
right? You know, the person that has the least amount of fun at any given party is the host, right? That's the the general consensus. Um, and I think that that's true of the thorn bearers. So, like, when they're protecting their civilization, the civilization is a, a little party town. Think about it as if you had a bonfire in the middle of a of the second story of a university uh, dormitory. Yeah. Right? That's kind of the feel I'm going for for a Seder settlement. Dave, you're next. What do you got? Honestly, I feel like these guys don't really have their own. They're going to just kind of leech on to whatever's close, whatever they stumble across. They're going to wander around aimlessly until they bump into something. And they're only going to have their jug of liquor in hand. And they're going to wander in, party it up, and move on to the next thing. These these yeah. guys don't have, to me, they don't have settlements of satyrs. I feel like if you have more than about six satyrs in a room, shit's going to pop off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Definitely. Um, I also think, like, here's something I was thinking about when I was prepping this. Bay deals are a, are a big issue, right? So what do satyrs want? They're going to want to learn a new dance. They're going to want your favorite pillow. They're going to want that shiny thing that you've got pinned to the front of your tunic. They're going to want um, uh, an, a magical instrument. They have no use for your gold. They have no use for your crown or your armor or the rings on your hands, unless the ring is etched to look like something funny, right? So I do feel like a good joke is worth more to them than anything else. But like, I'm assuming it's wine. Wine and food are the big things. Yeah, I would say so. Tyler, what does the settlement look like for... I think you guys have covered it. Just this idea of it's the evening settlement that's primarily satyrs. It's going to be just a, a joyous time. It's going to be a revelry. But I want to lean into the fey side here in the sense that it's going to be a lot of color. There's going to be... They're bringing visual stimuli because they want to have fun and everything, but they also want to bring kind of the fey side into the party as well. There's a lot of charming going on as well, so I feel like them being able to do things like cast hypnotic pattern and shit like that would be... Yeah, absolutely. Um, Speaking of, let's talk about party roles for a moment here. I have trouble picturing anything outside of Bard or Ranger for the Thornbearer, but I feel like you can make a strong point to really do anything except like an artificer or a wizard. Actually, I don't see a barbarian for these guys either. But I don't like, but with the Thornbearer being kind of fighty, um, I and you have like Oath of Nature, Oath of Devotion for Paladins. Like it could really be anything, but like these guys, I can't, like maybe not Warlock. Dave, Tyler, you got anything? Uh, I don't know. I think these guys are are your absent minded spellcaster. Like these guys could be your nutty professors. These guys, like Radagast from, you know, the Silmarillion or the Hobbit movies or whatever you want to say he's yeah. from. Yeah, uh, he he could have been a satyr. You know, he's got that very literal down to earth um, mentality that I I look that that, that fey connection that I look for from a satyr. Uh, do, do you feel like that's a that's a druid or a sorcerer or a bard more than a wizard or a warlock? Yeah, I th I think wizard was just kind of one of those catch alls at the time, and we have since yeah. refined it in the last ninety years. Um, but but yeah, yeah, more more sorcerer, more druidy. But uh, yeah, they, they they seem to be more divine than arcane to me. I, I would agree. Yep. Go ahead. I I just saw Tyler start to say I would agree, and I was about to say I agree. However, they're totally going to whip out a scroll and do some of the arcane spells because oh yeah, they're not afraid to fuck around. 
Like, and that's kind of the point is they will they will make a teleportation circle and be like hey 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 I I wonder who's on the second level of Hades at the moment <laughs> let's see right and oh, yeah, like, hey, I, I saw someone try the spell one time check this out fireballs the room everyone's standing in like delay blast fireballs so he has enough time to get out the fucking window and then it goes off right or the Dan method <laughs> I would I could see these guys as a warlock though I could and their patron being from the fae mm-hmm. uh, having an arch fae patron absolutely yeah i i could I totally see that and because of the high charisma you also have some some greek gods like dionysus and whatnot like the god of wine right like exactly yeah that that does so, make sense I, I can totally see that perspective and really role-playing it from that yeah but I, you gave me yeah. no keep going you gave me an idea for a barbarian though for a satyr. uh his rage comes on when he drinks too much or when he's too sober. Ooh, I like that even better. <laughs> um, I like the idea of, and bear with me, because you said Archfey Warlock, um, and then I said a Greek god. So, like, I'm thinking cleric, but there are nature clerics as well. Like, you can get all of the flavor, but there's no robes, right? The praying oh. is just going to be, I sit down at the little altar that I roll out, pour a little bit of wine into the cup for my god, and then be like, hey, check it out. I found some eggs, some, like, bird eggs over there. I'm going to make breakfast. I'll I'll make twice as much as I need so you can have some, right? And like and that's it. That is their level of praying, right? I'm just going to include you in my party that I that I have every morning at dawn and every morning at night, right? Like which is all that God would really want. Yeah, I, and I think that that would be an interesting way of doing it. Um, I already covered the names for them. Do you guys have any uh, final thoughts about um, like backgrounds for these guys or role playing insights or anything? Oh, I mean, maybe not so much on that, but uh, to go back to the Xenagos in Theros, he is one of my favorite Magic the Gathering characters. He started off as just a regular satyr, and actually, if you go through one of my decks, you'll see that uh, he did eventually end up becoming a god. Uh, He became the god of revelry. Now, that isn't Dungeons and Dragons canon. That's Magic the Gathering canon. So it's a little bit different, but the the Magic the Gathering version of Xenagos, he is a lot of fun. If you're looking for an NPC, go look into him because there's a lot of rich history from him from the Magic the Gathering. I think he does eventually become a planeswalker, even like it's he has a very robust story. Uh, just just to be just to be super clear, like I skimmed over the story, um, but he did become a god. Um, and I'm going to quote this directly. There's one sentence here, um, or sorry, two sentences. His victory shook the pantheon, but his victory was short-lived. Heliod, who is the big god, is the Zeus, right? But he's also a sun god, um, dispatched his champion, Elspeth, who faced many trials but ultimately killed the god Seder by driving the spear called Godsend through his heart. Which is Heliod's weapon. Yes, but um, so he was actually killed, but I'm sure he was brought back, like... That doesn't last long. That that death is cheap for gods in D and D and Magic the Gathering. So yeah. I was about to say D and D in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Any final thoughts, Tyler? I have one, and it was just more of an idea for an NPC. Is I could since these guys are can be quite eccentric. I almost picture an NPC being almost a fashion designer kind of person, and I could see him as a great quest giver for your side quests. Go fetch me this. Get me this pelt by any means necessary. Like, I really, like, I want to use a, a satyr now as an NPC for the random quests. 
that yeah. he wants you to go get stuff. And sure, it's a great playable character, yes. But I want also to use this guy as an NPC. One of the things that I want to bring up is the idea that at face value, these guys feel like they've got ADHD. They're going to go from one thing to another and be consistently moving around the party. But that's really not how they are. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If they want to bang on a drum, they'll bang on that fucking drum for the next eight months until they wear through it. If they want to blow a horn, they are going to learn every song they can on that horn and try to master it. If they're going to dance, they're not going to dance for 10 minutes. They're going to dance all night, right? And so they, and they're not looking to become experts. They're looking to have fun with it, right? And exactly. if they find that that one tune, the one hook that they think is really cool, they're going to play it over and over and over again because, hey, guys, listen to this. No, seriously, listen to it, though. Hey, did you hear I went from an F sharp to an A minor? No, no, no hold on. Stop and listen to what hey, I just did. Do you no, know no, who stop, in stop pop culture has Seder energy? Is uh, Ruby Rod from The Fifth Element. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes, pop, pop, pop. Um, also, speaking of uh, pop, pop, I would say that uh, Magnitude from, from Community has Seder energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, like, there are some really good, there's some really good examples in pop culture um of satyrs but like i don't besides puck have we gotten a satyr recently in pop culture i mean pan's labyrinth sort of i guess i guess like but that was not the kind of satyr that we're used to right so that no. was more creepy well yeah know, I, I, I it depends how far back you want to go because i know you have narnia the chronicles of narnia had it in there and Oh yeah, they first stumble across him when they. What's his name? Tumnus. Yes, 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 yes. So like, so there are some there are some good examples out there. I mean, they're loosely based on Pan as well. Did you know that according to some scholars, I ran across this. I didn't think it was really necessary, but I'm going to bring it up anyway um, before we move on. Um, according to some scholars, it was the satyr, uh, the imagery of a satyr, and the debauchery and the hedonism that actually gave the imagery of Lucifer and Satan to a lot of Christian artists, which is why the horns and the cloven feet are a part of this. Um, and that's where the artists in, like around the, um, the Middle Ages and um, like medieval artists started to really lean into these pagan gods and Pan being one of the most popular ones who looks like a satyr. Um, there's some blending uh, of iconography there as well. Which I thought was was really, really interesting. That's why the horns are specifically the way that they are, and the cloven feet are the way that they are in a lot of those old um like depictions. The artwork. Yeah. Yeah. In the artwork. Like no commentary whatsoever on the Christian beliefs. The artwork was very Seder inspired, which I thought was kind of kind of wild, right? So no, I agree. Um anyway, before we wrap this episode up, let's cut to our last ad break. If you've been inspired by the conversation in this episode, please feel free to reach out and share your creativity and ideas with us and the rest of the community. You can reach us on Facebook and Instagram or on our subreddit, r slash it's a mimic. Also, if you're feeling particularly generous, please follow and subscribe and leave us positive reviews, likes, and comments. Engagements like that help us pop up on search engines and keep this show running. So guys, I really want to emphasize here these three classes and these these three i guess ideas that you could pull from them there's a lot that you can do with it i would heavily recommend for players communicate with your dms please do that because there's a lot you can do here 
And as you, we've seen, there's differences between uh, between the Theros, Ravnica, and also the newest one, Monsters of the Multiverse. There's a lot of differences here. So we want to really nail down what are you doing. Talk to your, talk to your DM and have fun with it. Take these guys and have fun with it. Or if it, be creative with it. Make it your own. But just be communicative. There's going to be a lot of miscommunication about intention if you're operating out of the wrong book. Um, or if you come at it with a classic idea of what a centaur, a minotaur, a satyr are. And then you look in the book and be like, oh, wait a minute, that's not really what it is. So exactly. upon character creation, it is very important to talk to your DM. You're 100% right. Um, Dave, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I think that they've done an interesting job reflavoring all of these creatures for the different settings uh, and making them manageable to be dropped into just about any setting. I could put any one of these guys into Eberron, and here's my shameless Eberron bring up of the day. Um, and it, it, they wouldn't feel out of place, right? They did a good job doing that. But I feel like with all of these different reprints and all this different information, I'm starting to kind of get the 3.5 vibe out of 5th edition. And the simplicity that I loved of 5th edition is starting to go away. And I don't like that. This feels like a, a death throw for 5th edition. Even the, the Monsters of the Multiverse book. It just, it, it speaks to a larger problem, I think. And um, I don't know. It's just, it, it's it's weird. It the, just it seems so off base. The problem is that they are rewriting things instead of adding to it. And whenever they do a rewrite, that adds a complication. It adds a level of depth that we don't need. Like fifth ed is shallow. That's what I'm right? saying. Like the, the things that made this so much, the stuff that made me want to switch from 3.5 to fifth edition, I left a lot of stuff on the table switching over to this, but the benefits are starting to go to the wayside because of all of this new information, all of this, yes, but, yes, but. Well, is it this one? Is it this one? There there was no room for miscommunication before. Now there is a plethora of it. Like, it's just, yeah. it doesn't, it... it, it... Well, the, the addition has gone on too long, right? Yeah. Like, we're, we're revisiting things that didn't need to be revisited. No, they they're fucking this up. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, sorry, just to, because someone's going to be in the middle of typing an angry comment. Hobgoblins are not fey. I said they are earlier. They now have fey ancestry and they get fey gift, but they're still just humanoids. They're that goblins. seems problematic for different reasons. Yeah. Um, also, according to Monsters of the Multiverse, orcs are now blue. Did you yeah, see I saw that. They're artwork? not even gray or green or anything. Yeah, like it's it's flavored to what you want. Yeah. Sure. So that's all for our discussion on centaurs, minotaurs, and satyrs. Make sure that you subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Thank you for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, a store with some It's a Mimic merch, and a Patreon. This episode and others can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. Sometimes you get me talking about giant erections. Sometimes that's probably more often than not. Actually, yeah, I guess at this point they know they're getting that. Yeah, they, they do know that's the one thing they're going to get. <laughs> hey, we don't kink shame. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Please check the show notes for this episode to see links, time codes, and credits, and don't forget to reach out and share your own inspirations.
hey, normally this is where we would have a bunch of bloopers or a few outtakes or just a, an extra little bit of info tacked on to the end of the episode. But Tyler and Dave were surprisingly on task and focused. And with the exception of a couple of little flubs on their own personal scripts, there was really nothing to put here that's hilarious or funny. So what I'm going to do instead is just use the opportunity to monologue really quickly, give you guys a little bit of an update about what the future has for D&D &D, uh, as we see it. Keeping in mind that we don't get any behind-the-scenes information, we don't get a peek behind the curtain. Uh, this is all speculation based on decades worth of paying attention to how models like Wizards of the Coast's Dungeons & Dragons works. Um, there hasn't been anything quite like D&D &D with the longevity and the popularity, especially with the recent 5th edition interest in the game that has returned to it. Like, the, we've had a second heyday, and we've never really seen another tabletop role-playing game do that. Not like D&D &D has. Uh, it's had a couple of resurgences, I guess you could call it. But I've been talking to Dan, I've been talking to Dave... I've been talking to a bunch of people that have been paying attention since at least 3rd edition, if not longer than that, or have a decent history of D&D &D or other role-playing intellectual properties, and we're looking at a strange trend right now, and I just want to throw out a bit of a warning. 2023 has been an odd year for Dungeons & Dragons. There's been a number of major missteps made by Wizards of the Coast. From the racial insensitivities to the huge fuck-up with the AI art in Big B's Glory of the Giants. There's been uh, the whole OGL shit. We had some internal conversations about whether or not we were going to just completely give up on D&D &D altogether and either pivot the podcast or end it altogether. Now, we're sticking with D&D, &D, but it's very, very telling that we went from... Keys from the Golden Vault in, like, February to not another release until August. And then they're hitting us August, September, October, November with books that are, frankly, half-finished. With AI art in Big B's and the small uh, page count um, that we're getting in all of the other books. It looks like we're going to have another one of these more styles and substance box sets with Planescape. And God, I hope I'm wrong. I hope when it gets released that I will be wrong on that. But I don't think I am. And it feels like all of this shit is getting rushed out. It doesn't seem to have a whole lot of oversight. Very few things recently have seemed to have a whole lot of oversight when it comes to things like the Hadozi or the, the AI-generated art or... Just the fact that there are weird little inconsistencies, even in the PDFs that, that are released or the the D&D Beyond exclusive releases. They released D&D Beyond exclusive content for how to include Minecraft monsters for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. So there are Minecraft monsters, like including like the Creeper and stuff, that have stat blocks. It was released as a PDF. And it still exists. You can search for it on D&D Beyond, but it's not actually like promoted anywhere. There doesn't seem to be that level of oversight. And whether they're focused too much on the virtual tabletop they're trying to get running or integrating new kinds of ways to interact with their interfaces with D&D uh, Beyond, if they're focused on 
one D and D or whatever that's going to be, which by the way, those play tests have been further and further apart and there's been less and less talk about them. It feels to me like they're very clearly pushing towards something in particular, a new style of Dungeons and Dragons, and they're wrapping up all of their old ideas. So this conversation that I'm having with you right now is we will be releasing legend lore episodes uh, as close as we possibly can to the release dates, uh, starting now, of these four fall episodes that we, these four fall books, I guess, that we are going to get. It's um, Bigby's Glory of the Giants, or Bigby Presents the Glory of the Giants, um, the Fandelver and Below, which at first glance seems to be an okay product. A little short for my taste, but it seems to be okay. It's just a, another adventure. Um, and then there's Planescape, and then the Book of Many Things, which as far as I can tell from the releases and, and the public statements about it, this is just going to be a product where you get a physical deck of many things, plus a bunch of other stuff, and then a book on how to run it. How they're going to fluff up past 100 pages on the deck of many things is is going to be wild. We've just run a couple of episodes on it on the Patreon. I sat down with Mieke, we went to the deck of many things and the deck of many fates. Um, the deck of many fates being like a, a secondary product from a third party. Um, that's been coupled with the deck of many things and like it's interesting it's neat i've got thoughts about it about how to use this properly and i'm not sure that i could I, i'm long-winded i don't think i could fill 240 pages on the deck of many things i can't imagine what the book of many things is going to have to offer and it just seems to be a supplement and then we get this really conflicting weird stuff about the future of D and what they're going to do after they re-release the core rule books You'll notice the core rule books are being pushed further and further back in 2024 without any concrete date being given. And the adventures that they were talking about before, they were ramping us up, they've now just been silent on. So I assume that the first half of 2024 is not going to have a whole lot of much of anything except maybe promotional this or special des uh, like dice sets or you know, plushies, or they'll re-release the Waterdeep as a, you know, to double companions. Like, it'll be something like that. Or it's going to be, here's another book of maps, or here's a journal for Dungeon Masters. Just that really shitty, basic, ancillary nonsense that they keep trying to get us to buy. And it's all overpriced, just because it has a D&D label on it. And I just... I think that with the four books getting rushed through the end of this year and utter silence about the release dates moving forward. By the way, they had said that we were going to have a big Vecna book. We were going to have a big um, Red Wizards of Fae book. They were all going to be interconnected and there would be a massive overarching storyline moving forward that would take us essentially plane hopping. Which makes sense if you think about the fact that they've given a Spelljammer and Planescape and and they're really starting to build up this idea of the multiverse. They re-released the half of the monsters that existed out there in a new book with new lore that's just more agnostic so that we could go to different planets and see these different things and go to different realms and interact in different ways and they have these big grand sweeping plans and then they have shit the bed publicly. And 
I just feel like Wizards of the Coast is giving us this stuff right now to placate us so that they can catch the Christmas rush and then we're going to get a whole lot of nothing for a while. There's enough stuff that's been published for It's a Mimic to run for a while longer. We don't need any new publications, um, but I'm glad to have them. Uh, anything is better than nothing, even if, well, not anything, the racist Hadozi shit was not okay, but any uninspired or or minimalistic publication, the little bits and scraps and pieces we got through Spelljammer is enough for me to extrapolate and talk about, and we can get episodes out of it, I can be inspired from my homebrew, I could even run the mini-adventure, and I'll actually kind of like it, probably, but there's years and years of content that's already been published, so I'm not bemoaning Dungeons and Dragons. I'm just saying that we're at a bit of a weird point. Don't spend your money until you know what you're buying. As we come to the end of one era and we launch another one, what we've seen in the past, whether it was 3.5 or 4th edition, we have seen them shit the bed on the later publications that the ball's already rolling, the wheels are in motion, it's time to... to push this thing out and forward we can't stop it people have been paid we gotta do it but we're not going to put the final effort into it it's going to be the shitty little tiny page count it's going to have subpar art it's going to have conflicting information in it and we're starting to see that this is the era this is the late stage of a DD edition that many of us have seen before if fifth edition is the first one you're really paying attention to. Please be aware that as we move forward and talk about the things that are in the newer books, you got to have an asterisk beside it. And honestly, we're going to take more care moving forward. I mean, we've already recorded up to like episode 250-ish. So we're, we're a good solid couple of months ahead at this point. But we are going to start taking more care, understanding that you, the listeners, have probably not bought these books. Uh, if we're going to start talking about them, because why would you? Why would you? There are a lot of really great third-party things out there, a lot of different systems to play in. There's just like good board games. There are other options. There are more things to do with our time, and we're not stuck in a lockdown like part of 5th edition was, and kind of it's... I don't want to say it's heyday. I think it's heyday came a little earlier, but it, it definitely felt good to have D&D during the pandemic, right? A lot of people discovered it, a lot of people had time to invest in it. A lot of DMs had a chance to take a deep breath and, and reinvest their attention. We're not in that era anymore. The era that we're in now is hurry up and publish it, get it out, make the buck while we still have 5th edition. Because we're about to shake it all up to see what happens next. And so, I love Dungeons & Dragons. I love tabletop role-playing games. If you're listening to a D&D podcast... You love Dungeons & Dragons too. Even if you love to hate on the current edition, there's the warm and fuzzies inside when you think about these, these games that we play. I'm not going to tell you don't spend your money. I'm not going to tell you go spend your money. I am going to tell you take a breath and think about what you're buying. For my money at this point, Fizzbands is way more interesting than the Glory of the Giants. The Glory of the Giants is a pale little brother. To what Fizzbands was. The same way that Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is a pale little sister to Xanathar's. We've got 
other material that has been published that may not seem as flashy or as fun, but as we come into the holiday season and you want to buy books for people and you want to go and do this this big like celebration of D&D and we're going to have D&D parties, I want to give my DM a new gift. You don't have to do the new flashy thing. The new flashy thing is probably going to be a disappointment if it follows the trend we've seen before. So here's my PSA. Stop and think. What do you want? Where can you get it? Because at this point... I am fortunate enough that I've got a Patreon that helps us go out and buy all of the books so that we can review them and uh, and make all of the new books available for you guys to listen to our review of, our little bit of a deep dive. We try to be forgiving of it and not be one of these bombastic, sensational YouTube videos of the top 10 things wrong with this fucking publication. That's not us, right? We want to celebrate. We want to be inspired by but like let us spend our money first before you you think about it get a deeper dive that hasn't been sponsored by wizards of the coast and isn't schlock value even if it's not us stop and think and go back and revisit some of the earlier publications that are definitely worth looking into some of the biggest and the best ones were kind of about a third of the way through it if you can get your hands on tome of foes or volo's guide to monsters Go out and do it. The lore in that is second to none. Skip Sword Coast Adventures Guide, unless your DM or or you yourself really love the Forgotten Realms and are just desperate for anything. But you'd almost be further ahead to go pick this stuff up. The Forgotten Realms book from uh, from 3.5. The Eberron book is great. The Ravnica book is great. There's a bunch of shit in there that people can use. Xanathar's and Tasha's are phenomenal. If you want a good, exciting adventure to play with a lot of like really dark aspects and some exploration involved i've got really good things to say about icewind dale rhyme of the frost maiden i've got good things to say about candlekeep mysteries and journeys through the radiant citadel if you want something that's a little bit more modular or you want things that you can just plug and play if you are a big critical role fan call of the nether deep is really cool but i really liked their original publication that was third party the Taldore campaign setting I thought that was a more inspirational book there are things out there to go look at not the least of which are uh, Keith Amann's um, The Monsters Know What They're Doing books I'm sure you've seen them on the shelves and you've walked right by them and thought no I don't need this give it to your DM and trust me there will be an additional dimension to your combat encounters that are going to be way more fun once they crack that book open. But don't just go buying the next D&D publication right now because it may not be everything that you hope it will be. I hope it is too. But just from my experience, I might be a little bit jaded on this. I'm just throwing it out there. Hold off. And much like Strixhaven, Call of the Netherdeep, Spelljammer, Dragonlance, even Keys from the Golden Vault because it just heists and nothing but heists. We are starting to see more specialized and and more unique zooming in on, on certain topics and ideas in Dungeons & Dragons that we're not... It's not the broad strokes that anybody can use anymore. You cannot just... Anyone can buy Xanathars and get use out of it. Anybody can find something cool in Tomb of Annihilation or Tales from the Yawning Portal. Spelljammer, Dragonlance, Keys from the Golden Vault, Strixhaven, Call of the Netherdeep. These are very, very, very specific things that only some people are going to get something out of. And just because so-and-so may like giants does not mean Big B Presents Glory of the Giants is going to be the correct 
book. So bear with us. We'll try to get this information out to you as quickly as we possibly can so that you can make informed decisions. Um, and don't just believe everything you read online or hear in a podcast, including us. N- know yourself, know your DM or whoever you're going to give the gift to and make a proper informed decision. Because right now, it I'm not joking, you heard Dave and Tyler complaining about it. And this was recorded months ago. We've had a whole bunch of stuff released since then. We are in the stage now of the cash grab. The death throes of one single edition. Dungeons and Dragons will be fine. We'll be okay. There will be a weird transitional period in 2024, but we'll be okay. Don't fall for the fancy box sets and the buy the deck of many things bullshit that they're going to give you because you can do just fine with a tarot deck or a a regular bicycle deck of cards and the DMG. And frankly, if you don't own it, the DMG, we bitch. But the DMG is a better book than about half of the other shit that's been published so far. So, anyway, that's the end of my rant. I wasn't expecting it to go this long. I just wanted to be completely candid with everybody, and I didn't want to release a special episode with some schlocky title at the front of it going, Yeah, what we think about 5th edition, and here comes 1D&D, and I'm not, I'm not here to suckle at the teat of the algorithms that we have to adhere to. So, um, thank you for listening. Thank you for loving this game as much as we do. And you don't have to hold your breath. D&D will be okay. And it, the transitions it'll make will bitch at the time. But it, it, it will be alright. Where it lands is going to be okay. We're just going to have a whole bunch of angry internet warriors slamming on their keyboards for probably the majority of the next 18 months. Remember... This game is not a book. This game is not an edition. It's not a rule set. It's not an opinion that you can find on the internet. This game is not theory crafting, min-maxing, busting out DPS, or any other mathematical or logistical issues. As much as I will talk about advantage and disadvantage versus plus and minus numerical values that's not what D is it is about the stories around our tables and as long as you can find inspiration as long as you can find the parameters within which you can work you will have a good time and that's what we're here for the storytelling the connections with our friends and other people and getting the opportunity to be our creative selves playing characters that we wouldn't otherwise get to play. And no update to any Minotaur, Centaur, or Satyr is going to change our fun on that. So don't hang your hat on a single book, but don't despair. It will be okay in the long run, and I feel very confident now weighing in after the OGL nonsense that this hobby, this pastime, this passion, this game will survive even if you never give Wizards of the Coast another cent or you go in whole hog and buy all of their books. Because the thing that makes D&D special is you.